There's always those moments where the universe has other plans than you yeah. have, and you and it feels like if you adapt and release the suffering, like you're going to suffer over losing whatever. Yeah. But I always feel like there's something hidden in all those things. Hi, welcome to a new podcast series called Happy Thank You More Please, produced by Let It Out and hosted by me, Katie Dalebout, featuring filmmaker and musician Josh Radner. This series was inspired by, and the name comes from Josh's 2010 film, Happy Thank You More Please. And it's based off of this theme that I think runs through the entirety of that film, which is gratitude. So you might be very confused. This is the podcast feed of a show that I have hosted since 2013 called Let It Out. It's an interview podcast where I've spoken to 299 guests and nearing 300 episodes, I really wanted to switch things up and do something fresh and entirely new. Instead of starting a brand new podcast feed, I thought that I would do this series on the Let It Out feed that you know, that you love, that maybe you're subscribed to, or maybe you're new. But that show isn't going anywhere. I love it. I love getting to meet people. And this new format will allow me to bring back guests that I love in a updated form. This week's episode, this is a deep dive into what I would recommend if I was a guest on this show, a movie that is so meaningful to me. And it's really cool that I've gotten to connect with the director, writer, and star of the film, Happy Thank You More Please, my friend, Josh Radner. We connected years ago when he did my podcast, Let It Out, and I even mentioned the movie in my book. And we joke in this episode that I am the president of the movies fan club and i'm not the only one this film won the audience award at sundance when it came out and this episode is really a love letter to that movie and we get into what the experience was for josh making it as his first film that he directed and it's really just a jumping off point for us to talk about a lot of the themes that come up in this film, which are worthiness and adulthood and heartbreak and creativity and change and mentorship and friendship. If you haven't seen the film, you might want to take a 90 minute pause right now, watch it in return, or either way, you'll still get a lot from this episode, even if you haven't seen it yet, but it definitely will make you want to watch it eventually. We actually recorded this conversation months ago before I left on what will end up being close to a year of solo travel. And I'm so happy that we got it in when we did. And listening back to it, it was weirdly timely. A lot of the wisdom that Josh shared felt like it was helpful and useful to me right now in the very different world that we're living in, in this. And Josh is one of my favorite people to talk to in general. His retention of wisdom and the way he sees the world and his devotion to living a creative life inspire me. And his writing and his work has this ability to articulate something that feels true to me, but I've been unable to explain to myself. So I'm really grateful for him and that we got this conversation in 
the film ends up being this beautiful jumping off point for us to have a meandering conversation that goes in a million different directions. I'm excited for you to start eavesdropping now and I'll tell you more ways to connect with Josh, but basically I'll just say now, follow everything he does and I'm really glad you're here. Thank you so much for doing this, Josh. We're starting. We're starting. It's going. This is it. Do you get nervous that you're not recording like upset? Because I would be time. like so nervous. All yeah. the time. I check that red dot. I'm nervous right now. <laughs> yeah. I did a podcast with this comedian, David Hansberger, and we had the greatest like 45 minutes before he realized it was not recording. <laughs> it's really, I, I had it happen. Now I'm like more anxious about it. Sorry. And it's okay. Sorry. Let's switch over to the podcast you're doing about anxiety. Yeah, right. <laughs> I went upstate and had someone on my podcast, had this lovely trip, took the train, did the whole thing. And this is even worse than it not recording. This is embarrassing and on me for moving too fast. I accidentally moved it, the file into the trash, emptied the trash. Oh, God. And I like went to the Mac store. I tried to get them to get this file gone. Yeah. She was so cool about it. And we recorded again. And I think it was actually better. But I still am like, oh, in that episode, there was this nugget like it's just yeah it's just i'm working with this actress kate mulvaney right now who's this she's amazing she she's a brilliant actress but she's australian she's also like one of the most famous playwrights in australia she's written like 25 plays one of her most famous plays is called the seed and it started off as a novel that she was deep into and her computer got stolen and she lost the book and it was just like it kind of redirected her to put it into i think she's happier now with the as a play but there's always those moments where the universe has other plans than you yeah. have and you and it feels like if you adapt and release the suffering like you're going to suffer over losing whatever. Yeah. But I always feel like there's something hidden in all those things. There's nothing more frustrating to me than having to redo work I already did once. I know. Like if I, I like know. was doing a spreadsheet and it didn't save like that is so frustrating but yeah. with creative work I think it feels frustrating in that same way but it is sort of different. It's like Maybe it will be better if you recreate it or, yeah. I don't know. It still makes it uncomfortable. That's good because today, part of the things I want to talk to you about is like the process behind this movie that was so, which is how we connected. Yeah, yeah. And it's so meaningful to me. And I hadn't watched it in a while either, which. Did you just rewatch it? mm -hmm. Does it hold up? I love it. Yes, (laughs) it does. I haven't seen it in so long. And I hadn't watched it in a long time but rewatched it for the purpose of this conversation. Yeah. Which is funny because we kind of joke about this all the time. I get messages all the time about your movie, but like as if I'm the ambassador for it. Right. People well, who listen you kind to of my are. podcast. Yeah. Like, oh my God, I love this movie tagging me. Yeah. Somebody was making t-shirts and asked me if it was okay. And then I like <laughs> asked Josh, like it was so, it's been so bizarre and lovely. But then after a while I was like, oh, I need to rewatch this movie. Like yeah. I hadn't, I hadn't watched it in years. Mentioned it in my book. But anyway, it's it does hold up oh, great. and it's so meaningful to me. But the weird thing watching it this time was that I related to it in a totally different way because I'm older than the characters are in mm-hmm, the movie. Mm-hmm. And when I watched it for the first time, 30 seemed so old. Right. And like that, there's that line where Rashid is running and your character's like, can we stop running? I'm almost 30. Yeah. And that just seemed so far off. And now I like have a hip problem and I get it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wait till your mid forties. Oh man. <laughs> okay. So you once told me, or actually you just told me this also before we started recording that happy. Thank you more, please. Was this movie about your twenties? When did you start writing it? What was going on in your life then? What inspired it? Yeah, well, my path as a writer is actually really linked up with my path as an actor. 
I had always been a writer. I had always loved creative writing and fiction writing. I'd always been a huge reader. So what happened to me was I went to NYU for graduate school at the grad acting program at Tisch. I got out and I had never not been in school. I had always been, yeah. you know, from, from preschool on. Yeah. I just, you know, my life was like summer break and you go back to school. And that was up until I was 24 going on 25. So I got out of school and my least favorite thing about being an actor, which remains in some level, my least favorite thing about being an actor is that you need permission to do it. Yeah. Someone has to sit, call you off the bench and be like, it's time for you to act, right? And there was something about that kind of powerlessness that bothered me. So I was living with my girlfriend at the time in Los Angeles, kind of going back and forth between New York and LA. And I started writing uh, stories. I started writing fiction. And I kind of had this idea, this grand idea that I would be like an actor who put out a book of short stories. And wouldn't that be cool to be like a fiction writer who's also an actor and have two careers? Yeah. But I noticed that I I loved writing dialogue and I, and I had a sk- I had a facility for it. But I ha- I was always fighting this cliche of being an actor or living in New- in LA writing a screenplay. Like I just didn't want that to be my fate. And then I started writing a script, an early script that I never made. It was called The Adulthood Project. And it was kind of a riff on my relationship and about my fears of getting older and all this stuff, which is a recurring theme for me. I wrote a scene in longhand and it was beside my bed. And Rebecca, I was, I don't know, drinking some coffee and like reading the paper in the morning. And I heard her laughing from the room and she came in holding the pages and she was like, please keep writing this. Uh, Like it really made her laugh. Isn't that funny how people in our lives can kind of like nod in the direction of keep going? Yeah. And you got to pay attention to where I find where the universe is saying yes, Mm -hmm. like, like lean into it. And I, I have some people in my life who say no to the invitation and because they don't, it's not, it doesn't, it's not what they want or yeah. something. And I've always, I don't know. I'm, I'm glad that my, what the universe has said yes to is actually what <laughs> seems to be what I want. I'm going to knock on something here. <laughs> so I wrote this script and it got a lot of attention from just producers. No one wanted to give me money for it, but they thought it was like a great example of my writing. This is the adulthood, the adulthood project. Yeah. And then I got on how I met your mother and I, I've talked about this before. And I think I talked about this with you. It was, um, the first two seasons were really hard for me. I, I suddenly was on this thing that culturally demanded that I be happy all the time about it. And I was just depressed. I was just, I couldn't find my footing. I, the character was, I, I, it was hard like to be inside that experience and it remained hard in certain ways, but I was able to offset it by doing other things like making movies. But the first two seasons I was writing happy. Thank you more, please. And how did it start? I think it started. I saw a kid almost get separated from his, parents on like it didn't happen like he actually his his mom like yanked him through but i thought what if, yeah like what if that kid what if i ended up with that kid mm-hmm. <laughs> like what would happen so that was one thing the other thing i had start i'd been taking notes and writing a scene about a couple i didn't know where it would go but like a couple arguing over new york and la yeah. and then i have a very dear friend with alopecia and she became a character and then for some reason i wanted to end a movie with someone singing that song from Flora the Red Menace. And that was all I had. I just had like these signposts, you know. The Charlie and Mary Catherine stuff came in a little bit later. And I wrote it over two years and uh, I didn't know what it was about. I just had these plot points that I really liked. And then somehow it became about gratitude. I remember I had heard the thank you more please thing. And I wrote it in as a scene that Annie tells Sam number two. And I just thought, oh, this movie's about, you know, I think the late 20s, or at least for me, that my 20s were marked by that feeling of like, got to keep going, you know, moving, 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 keep going, keep going. And you're chasing something. You don't even know what you're chasing. I'm like in that 
right this moment. Yeah. <laughs> and in some ways, a lot of my movies are about, all right, stop, just stop, take a breath. This is happening, which is a key phrase in my new movie that I was telling you about. This is happening. This is happening. It's not what it's called, but it's like just this idea of, because when I, I, I actually discovered that book, The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle when I was in a deep depression after a breakup after Rebecca, the, this same girlfriend. And I was really depressed, you know, probably clinically depressed. And I found The Power of Now uh, in a Shakespeare and Company downtown. And I started reading it and I felt literally my depression lift off my shoulders as I read that book. I need to reread that book. <laughs> yeah. I don't know why it had such a powerful effect on me. I get a little embarrassed that it had such an effect on me, yeah. you know, but it really, and then I walked around with it. Like I had, I, I, I was like clutching the secret to everything. And I was like, why is everyone not holding this book right yeah, now? Like yeah, this yeah. is everything. But my, my thought was my, my thought when I, when I got myself present for the first time, maybe in my life was like, this is all that's happening. And I still have to remind myself, like, me talking to you is literally all that's happening in yeah. my life. And I think that that's the antidote to anxiety on some level, which is like, because anxiety is either obsessing about the past or the future, yeah, right? Yeah, it's not being present. Yeah. yeah. So if I can remind myself like this is happening and this is all that's happening, it seems to, um, it seems to just lessen whatever yeah. those voices are in it my head. It dissipates a little bit. Yeah. It's funny. It reminds me of that classic line from Almost Famous, it's all happening. Oh, yeah. Which I think about a lot, but this one feels calmer. Like, it's not <laughs> yeah. all happening. It's not all happening. This. Yeah, yeah, just this. Yeah, yeah. And that feels it's nice. It's more bite-sized. Yeah. yeah. I, I had this moment where I was studying abroad in college, and it was the best thing I ever Where'd did. Where'd you study? In Spain. Oh, yeah. Whereabouts? Barcelona and half in Madrid. Mm. And I went to this big state school. I didn't want to go there, but I ended up there. And I was really depressed in my first two years of college. And my best friend, who still lives in New York, still my best friend now, encouraged me to go and like booked our flights for us, encouraged yeah. me to go. But I had, you know, I'm from this small town in Michigan, never been out of the country before. And the moment I was about to leave, I was just, it felt correct, but I was so overwhelmed yeah. by it. And it ended up being great. But my cousin said this thing to me. She was just like, this is happening. Mm. And that, that those were, it's funny that when you said that, it stuck with me because she was like, the trip starts now. It just, I was saying to her, like, I didn't get all I needed done packing and I wanted to say yeah. goodbye to this person. I wanted to do this. I wanted to do that. And she's like, well, the trip starts now. This is happening. And I've always kept that in my mind when I'm spiraling about not having gotten done all the things I yeah. need to get done before something. I'm just like, the trip starts now. Yeah. There's a kind of a mercy in the inevitability of things. Yeah. Like this is, this is going to happen. Yeah. This, is, this is happening. I also find like fear, there's two uses of fear. One is the kind of reptilian limbic brain that's like danger or present get get out of here yeah and the other one is what what uh, this woman that i used to study with she said we only fear what we want she said you don't fear becoming a plumber because you don't want to be a plumber oh we get scared when we get up close to our desires yeah you know because we're afraid of not getting them maybe it's that or maybe it's i think sometimes we're a little bit addicted to the state of wanting totally and desiring. Yeah. And then when you get the things, for instance, like getting on how for, you know, for years I was like, well, if I only had a hit TV show, yeah, everything would be solved. Yeah. And then you get that and you're actually a little more depressed than you were before because your morphine drip of the hope, yeah. the sustaining hope is gone. Yeah. And then you just have to deal with your life. <laughs> it all know? rushes back in. It's like all your anxiety is going to getting this thing and then yeah. you get this thing and then the void's back. It's really the biggest cultural lie we tell ourselves yeah. is that when I get X, Y, and Z, then I'll be happy. Like I was actually telling someone this the other night when people say, you know, what's the biggest piece of advice you, you could give me as a young artist mm -hmm. or an actor or a writer? The first thing I always say is meditate. 
like get a meditation practice because that's going to save your mm -hmm. life. The second thing I say is get your dreams fulfilled as quickly as you can so that you can realize that that's not what's going to save you. Just get them, you know, get the, if you're like, I need to be famous, I need to get money, get the fame and money so you can disabuse yourself of that idea. And a lot of people, wisdom traditions have said this for years. Jim Carrey says this, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, and it's annoying because the idea that like money and fame, for instance, or career success, visible success will make you happy is so thick in our mm -hmm. society that you, if you tell someone that they won't believe you. Right. You have to do you it for yourself. It. You have to experience yeah. it. And it's a little bit different. It's tricky because it's a little bit different for everyone. For some yeah. people, it's a relationship that validates you. Totally. For me, I remember you hearing that lesson from you, hearing your ink talk and hearing, maybe we talked about it the last time you did my podcast, but for me, like moving to New York City was a big validating thing for me where I was like, well, once I live here, then, then I'll be good enough. Yeah. And it turns out that doesn't work. And well, like, you really do bring yourself with you. You bring your discontented self totally. with you. Yeah. And it's like the same thing. A lot of my stuff is body image too. So if I could just be thin enough, then everyone will like me and right. everything will be perfect. Right. And like, turns out that's not true either. You right. Know? Like, right. Wherever I've done all of those things. Yeah. And so I'm, you know, but then I, it's, it's all about, I think it's, we don't feel it's a self-worth issue. You know, yeah. we don't feel good enough as ourselves. So we think we need this body or relationship or person or career success, monetary success. We're just constantly trying to fill the hungry yeah, ghost. Kind you know? of, or the God-shaped hole or whatever yeah. you want to call it. You know, it, yeah, it's, it's very true. And I've found as I've gotten older that thankfully, like the work I do actually brings me joy. I mean, it's still a grind, like, you know, a 15 hour day shooting a TV show it's like, it doesn't feel that glamorous. Right. Like you're really fried. Like we shot this chase sequence through a subway two weeks ago on one of the hottest days in New York oh and it was God. not fun. And it's probably going to look amazing. It's like torture. <laughs> yeah, but it felt, it was like really hard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I found that I like the work so much that it's kind of like John Patrick Shanley said this. I was at a theater with him and a couple people we were having dinner and a friend of mine was talking about how hard this thing was she was setting up uh, like her family farm she was turning it into like this theater collective so this i'm actually going up there this weekend it's this amazing thing she's done oh, but cool. she was having to deal with like land grants and yeah. deeds and all this city ordinances and she was like it's he said how's it going and she said it's a real struggle and he like got maniacal look in his eye and he's like everything's a struggle everything's a struggle you will never escape struggle he said the key to life is find what you love and struggle at that yeah that's the key and I think about that quite a bit, you know, that if I have to struggle at something, I want it to be storytelling. I want it to be writing and, and acting and making music and directing movies. And just, I, that's just what I want my struggle to be. And thank God that I know what I love. Cause I think a lot of people don't know what they want to struggle yeah. at. But the, the illusion that if I find something I love, I won't be struggling is like an illusion. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Or, or have, we've talked about this before too, have too many ideas of things that you want to struggle with. So being in that indecision of which one, like that Julie Devley quote from, what is it? Before Sunrise, before one of those yeah. movies where she's like, I have so much I want to do. I end up doing that much. Right. So I think just choosing something to struggle on. Yeah. Is but really I might've told you this before though, that I, I had this therapist years ago who specialized in highly creative personalities. Right. And mm -hmm. yeah, but he, he talked about I think I told you this when you were like kind of freaking out mm -hmm. about this, that one of the features of highly creative personalities is starting more things than you can finish. I evangelize that line all yeah. the time because. It's well, it's a relief, so, yeah. right? Like, cause you're like, wait, I'm a scattered maniac. Makes me feel special. Maniac. <laughs> yeah. But really I find that ideas are just like manure on the ground and something grows out of them. Yeah. Well, okay. Getting back to talking about your movie, 
I think it was the director on How I Met Your Mother, someone told you that that project itself wouldn't hit all of your notes creatively. So you were also writing, do you feel like working on this film, Happy Thinking More Please, was something that lit you up during that time and kind of started to bring you back? Yeah, 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 yeah. I really, really didn't know if I knew how to direct a movie. How old were you when you- I was 34 or 35. I'd been on a TV show for a while, and I, but I hadn't actually been on that many sets other than How I Met Your Mother. Like, I did a, a series that got canceled very quickly called The Court, where I did six episodes, and I did a ton of guest spots. But So I directed it after, I think, the fourth season of How I Met Your Mother. So I wrote it for two years and looked for money for two years. Mm-hmm. And then I finally was able to do it. So you started writing it when you were 29? So you were no, no, 20s? no. I think I was 31 okay. when I started writing it, yeah. Early 30s. Uh-huh. But I remember there was a moment I was going up to San Francisco for something, and my lawyer called because we got an offer to do it for like there it was a lot less money than we wanted and it was right when independent budgets were going down 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 yeah. down down this is 2000 this would be 2009 maybe okay. or 2000 yeah 2008 2009 we were in the airport and and he said do you want to do it because you can do the movie this summer on your hiatus but you have to take this amount of money and so jesse my producer who i also went to high school with a dear friend of mine jesse Hera. He and I said to my lawyer, let us discuss it. And I remember we we still talk about this moment. It was like a total fork in the road moment where we're like, do we do this now or hold out for life? And we were both terrified. We were like, no, no, we had not, no idea how to make a movie. And we just, for some reason, talked each other into it. So you did it for that small amount of money? Yeah. I mean, it was relatively small. It's actually, budgets have gone down more and more. So it wasn't even that little money. <laughs> it just, we wanted a lot more because that's what right. we thought you needed. But we shot it in 23 days. I... The first day or two, I was completely overwhelmed because I was also in the movie, yeah. stupidly. Starring. Yeah, but I didn't know how to do it. So my cinematographer was really helping me the first couple of days. And I remember watching the dailies and I thought, okay, I know I know how to string this movie together. Like I know how to edit this. And I thought, I think I have this. I think I have what I needed. And it was the office stuff when Rasheen was like wandering down the hall and like in the waiting room at the office with Richard Jenkins. I was directing Richard Jenkins also my first day. And I didn't know what I was doing. And then the third day, I had a couple moments that felt like victories where I was like, I think I'm I'm getting this. And then I remember the fourth day I went, wait, I think I love this. That was a day, by the way, that I remember feeling like I knew how to make a movie finally. Oh. Like it was such a nice day and Pablo was so good and we were making each other laugh. And I liked, Seamus was shooting them. It's called French Overs where it's kind of over your shoulder mm-hmm. and you're kind of seeing the sides of the face. And I just like the way the it's lit. Really, yeah. It's beautifully lit. And I just always like that scene. And when I walk, I really like the third act of Happy Thank You More Please. Like I think it ends strongly. Yeah. You know, it's like it's propulsive and it, and it really, if you can get the third act of the movie right, that means the first two thirds are working. But, yeah. but there's something about when I would, even at film festivals, if I would just pop in and watch the end, I sometimes would come in during that scene and I could tell the audience was in, you know? So that's an important, that's actually a really important scene to me. Yeah. I think that's probably when I, definitely the dialogue that sticks with me the most, those two lines really. Yeah. That we covered naturally really always stuck with me. And it was, you know, I'm a bit of a, uh, like a sly alpha. Like I'm, I'm actually, I love being a leader, mm-hmm. but I, I'm not overt about it. Like I kind of get, and I like being in an ensemble, Yeah. but I also really like leading. And there's something about being a film director that hit on all of my talents, not just 
writing, but directing, you know, being able to read a room, being able to talk to actors in a different way based on what they need, being able to keep people motivated and excited. Yeah, you're so, uh, Being grateful, like, like I said goodnight and thank you to every crew member at the end of, you know, that's something that I was told. It's kind of hosting in a way. It is hosting, yes. You have to be both humble and kind of have a brashness Mm -hmm. about you. Like there's 50 people who are there just to serve the vision of the thing you wrote in a coffee shop. You know, and it's a little crazy. Like you can understand why directors get God complexes because I would imagine these scenes and then suddenly it's materializing in front of your face. It's crazy. Yeah, It was the perfect antidote to what, where I felt like what I wasn't getting on the TV show. The other thing that I think people didn't understand, that movie was made for not a lot of money. We got into Sundance. It won the audience award. And I think a lot of people thought that I was benefiting from like, this wave of being on this TV show. First of all, How I Met Your Mother wasn't that popular then. I don't think a lot of people n- knew it. And they certainly, if they knew me, they just thought I was a guy who got plucked from obscurity and was on a TV show, which is also not the, not the case. But I was doing and continue to do, have this very indie part of my life. Yeah. You know, like right now I'm working for Amazon and I'm also like going to raise money again for a yeah. super small independent film. And I'm, we we're, I produce my own records, you know, like, yeah. like, I'm not with major labels and stuff. So I have this very indie DIY thing going on while I make my living as an actor under bigger kind of umbrellas. I always forget that about you because I came into your work never having seen your show and from this other vein of your life, your indie vein. Yeah. And I almost forget it. Well, I actually, (laughs) I had a a, a girlfriend years ago who, she was with me enough when people approached me Mm -hmm. kind of in the world. And she said, you do know you're a lot nicer to people who come up and talk to you about your movies than they are than you are about oh, how I met your mother. Funny. And it wasn't conscious. It's just yeah. more. I didn't write right, how yeah. I met your mother. I didn't write it. You know. Right. I, so when people think that that's me or that you know those aren't my words and those aren't my actions, I was yeah. like contractually obligated to do that stuff. Right. Whereas if you if you really like Happy Thank You More Please or liberal arts or anything yeah. that I, I I write like an essay or something. That's just more me. Yeah. So I feel like I'm being seen more clearly. Yes. I mean, I say this all the time, but I think that we, all we want as people is to be seen and loved for who we really are. And what we're most afraid of is to be seen and loved for something that isn't really us. Yeah. You know? It's been, it's been the source of a lot of struggle. Like the, the shadow of being on a, a kind of globally famous show. Yeah. Like I haven't stopped working as an actor really since I got off the show. But like the kid in Portugal who hasn't seen any of the three or four television yeah. series or he doesn't come to Lincoln Center or go to Broadway right. to see a play. He's like, dude, when are you going to be back on yeah. TV? Why'd you stop <laughs> acting? You know, and it's like, uh, yeah, man, I'm just not on like an internationally famous show right now. And maybe I'll be on another one and maybe I won't. But it's a it's a weird thing to kind of honor the gifts of that show and the liberation it gave me both creatively and financially, oh, yeah. and also not let it overwhelm me. And, and also I'm playing a role now. I, I, I told you about it, but I'm, as you can see, I <laughs> just describe, I have like a mustache and crazy chops. I'm playing this movie star from the seventies. Who's also doubling as a Nazi hunter, um, hunting out Nazis who are hiding in New York city. So I hear your characters like, the best. Oh, that's so nice. Um, oh, our photographer friend. Yeah. yeah. He's taking a beautiful photograph. Yeah, yeah he showed me some. Yeah. But I love it. And I was always, I'm just looking for roles that don't, you know, anytime I was offered lovesick guy in New York City looking for love, I couldn't. Yeah. It's like I've done that. You've really done a departure yeah. from that. Yeah. Okay. So back to my favorite thing you've made so far. 
And I've, I've liked all of the things you made, I yeah. have to say. So you told me once too, just this is a quick thing, that you would meditate during your breaks on the set of Happy Thank You More, Please. Yeah. Did that sustain you? I think, I think too, like, I don't know, I look at that movie as a collage of so many different things, which I think is why I love it. I love collage art. I love blending things together. I love bringing people together. So I think that's why it hits a lot of notes for me personally. Yeah. And then I think directing kind of does that too, where it's like, you're hosting this party, you can bring people together, you're making something together. There's a lot of positives to that and you were able to control your own environment. So talk to me about how you, I think you were kind of new to meditating at that time too. Right? I started meditating in 2003. Okay, never mind. <laughs> so yeah. I mean, at that time, I was I, for about a decade, I was a really diligent twice-daily meditator. Mm -hmm. I'm a little less diligent. New York is hard. Admit. Yeah. I still, every once in a while, I'll get two. I try to do one a day for sure, but at that even doesn't always happen. But at that time, I was really in it. And I remember at lunch, like I would take like, you know, 15 or 20 minutes and go behind, you know, find a folding chair and just like sit. Yeah. I don't think I did it every day. But I remember people would leave me alone and I would do it. Yeah, I remember um, you telling me that. And it was like a watershed moment for me to be like, oh, he was like in charge there. I can slip away and meditate. Yeah. You know, it's an interesting thing also to create, like on Rise, this show that I did last year or two years ago, this NBC show. I was learning how to play guitar at the time and I was very obsessive about it. And I still am. But I didn't bring my phone to set, but I brought a guitar Oh, yeah, I remember you writing about that. Yeah, and it was it changed things for me because I I got better at guitar, which was great. I wasn't lost on my phone and getting distracted from the work. And then all these people would kind of gather around, even if I wasn't playing a song, we, I, they would just, they, you know, your people are yeah. attracted to music. And, yeah. and I was nervous to do it on The Hunt, this new show that I'm doing, but I did. And then two of the cast members play guitar. So oh, we'll, we'll pass so around the guitar. And a lot of hair and makeup people, you know, or, or wardrobe people come up and say, I love, I love when you have the guitar on set. Like, it's so nice to just hear that yeah. sound. And, uh, you know, it's just a reminder to me, like, honor who you are mm -hmm. and, like, bring who you are yeah. to work. Yeah. Like, I'm someone who, like, likes to play guitar. <laughs> so I'm getting a little more courageous in my, as I'm becoming more of a veteran of, like, feeling less like an imposter or like, no, that's not what's done. Yeah. And just like really creating my own environment that where I can flourish. Yeah. Like worried about being liked or am I okay? Should I be here? Yeah. So just like, I feel like in environments where I feel really safe, I'll come and I'll wear whatever I want to wear. And I'm like, I fully myself. And yeah. then when I feel a little bit like, am I allowed to be here? Yeah. I tense up. Well, that's one of the other things I love about directing is you're the chief tone setter, right? right? Like you, you get to say, this is what we're doing. This is the vibe. And you get to lead by example. I mean, you you yeah. do that. You just, you are the thing that you are saying. And if someone isn't up to that, like they might be asked to leave, not by me. Right. But you know, like the first AD or second AD might be like, they weren't on our vibe. Yeah. They weren't on our wavelength. They were rude or whatever. Yeah. And, um, and I feel like it's hard to make movies. It's hard to make television shows. It's hard to make theater. The least that can be asked of people is to be, kind yeah. and courteous yeah. and also you know you do your best work when you feel safe mm -hmm. i want especially actors to feel so safe they can fail they can be wrong they can be messy they can you know that's one thing I've, i'm al pacino's on this show and i've just learned so much from watching him work through things mm -hmm. he keeps hunting and searching and and sometimes it doesn't work and he knows when it doesn't work and he asks for another take and it's just watching someone be messy in their process. Yeah. But it, he always comes to it and there's always something brilliant that the 
that they're going to find and like that's what they'll use. I'm sure it's years of self-awareness, you know? I think the more self-aware we are, the easier it is to exist. Yeah, and he also, I was telling someone that I don't feel like Pacino's self-esteem depends on how good his last take was, which is like a really deep thing mm -hmm. because sometimes I think when, certainly when I was younger, even at grad school, I felt like for my first year and a half, I was still auditioning to get into the program when I was already in the program. Because yeah. I was so, my sense of self was so jelly. You know, it was yeah. just like jello. Like it was just like I could, I didn't have anything solid to stand on. And I was so worried that I had tricked everyone, convincing people I had a right to be there. And as I've gotten older, I've seen that like, no, good artists just take their space. They're not afraid to be bad, they're not afraid to make mistakes. They'll ask for another take if they need it, you know, like really just allowing yourself that freedom. And I know that's easier for some people than other people. Yeah. Yeah. I'm in the jello a bit. I'm in the happy. Thank you more, please. This is a good. I have great faith in you, Katie. You're going gonna to solidify. <laughs> I'll be Pacino soon. Yeah, yeah, you'll be very soon. <laughs> oh, God, I hope. Okay, so I want to get granular about these different pockets of this film. Sure. I was saying to you before we recorded that this really does feel like my birthday. Like, this is really scratching an inch for me that I've had. Like, rewatching it felt so cool to know that I was going to get to talk to you about it. It's also so, I have to say, it's so satisfying to make something that I loved so much. Yeah. And I knew that, like, Jesse loved it just as much, yeah. right? And that's all we had to go on. Like we took it to Sundance for 12, you know, 1200 people at the Eccles Theater. And we were like, we like this movie. <laughs> like we don't know, but that's where you have to trust your taste because you're your first audience. Right. But it's so satisfying when someone loves something you made so much. It's really, it's, it's very touching. I Thank know. you. And it's so cool that we like bonded and got to be friends. I know, it's amazing. Thing that you it's made amazing. and it's cool. Okay, so yeah, so we're gonna go into these different pockets of the film to use as kind of a conversation starter to these main topics I've fleshed out that I think are themes of the movie. So yeah. gratitude, worthiness, adulthood, change, and above all to me, honestly, friendship. Yeah. So that's kind of where I wanted to begin. I might add like, and this, this is a theme that runs through all my movies, even movies that haven't been made yet, but mentorship. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a kind of friendship, I think. Mentorship more definitely so in liberal arts. I think so, but Rasheen and Sam kind of almost trade off mentoring yeah. each other and the friends take care of each other. Yeah. Okay, so let's get into the opening scene. I relate to that feeling so much of needing to call a friend while you're in a panic. Yeah. And there's, I think this is actually in there, but needing them to talk you down. Yeah. Lately, that's just, I have my people that are just so cozy to me that I can call. And it's something I do so often. Is that something that you do or did or relate to? For sure. Yeah. John's one of those people for me. Yeah. John Morrow always calms me down. My friend Trent and I have a joke. We're like, hey, is John Morrow okay? I got his answering machine. He, he didn't pick up and talk to me for two hours about my life. Like he's so generous yes, with his that's time. My, that's and my he makes these beautiful pieces of art that you're like, when are you, are you doing art while you talk to me? Because like, where do you, how do you get this all done? You're, I'm taking up a lot of your time. Yeah, friendship. I certainly have those people. And I hope that I'm those, that to some other people, you know, it works both ways. And you get so much from the other way. That's yeah. what I'm learning. One now. of the things that I was very interested in with Happy Thank You More Please was I wanted to show men and women who were friends right? Like just friends without, I actually cut a line. I cut a scene between Annie and Sam. They're getting stoned on the roof. You. Have you ever seen that scene? It's an, it's a deleted scene. No, but I was going to ask you if you ever thought about 
that being because I thought when the first time I watched it that they were going to end up together. Well, she says in that scene that that ended up on the cutting room floor just because of a pace issue. I really love the scene, but he's telling her how wonderful she is. And she just very kind of offhandedly says, if I'm so wonderful, how come you never wanted to be with yeah. me? And then she razzes him about like the kind of women he dates. Yeah. You know, and that's like, still in there. Yeah. That's in there. Yeah. Like, what does she say? Like Pilates instructors or something? Yeah. Or, something yeah. Like, I'm sure Mississippi's a homely girl with like a <laughs> yeah. kicking personality. Yeah, 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 exactly. But that was important to me because I have very dear female friendships and in it's like some the ways, antidote to the um, when Harry met Sally. Yeah, but I have to say, as I've gotten older, and this is kind of off topic, but like, I've been leaning a little more into my male friendships just because things do get complicated. Yeah, even in the most subtle ways, I still have very, very dear friends, and I have two sisters who are two of my yeah. best friends. You know, and I think I'm a like kind of female oriented man mm -hmm. in that. I never wanted to be in a fraternity. Yeah. <laughs> like I get nervous when it's just a large group of guys. I'm yeah. like, something could go terribly wrong here. Like yeah. where are the women? But I do think that it's valuable kind of um, contribution to the culture to show that like men and women are friends yeah. and it doesn't have to be all that complicated. And sometimes I can tell things to female friends that I can't tell to male friends and vice versa. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. It was cool to, it was cool that you showed that I wrote that down that I wanted to talk to you about that. And this movie shows so many forms of friendship, close friendship, obligation friendships, like a family friend, like with Mary Catherine and Sam, like kind of almost not really liking each other. Or they're like cousins a little bit. Yeah, exactly. Who kind of gripe. Like a family friendship and then best friendship, you know, which is like this particular bond, like you were saying, with having those people that you can just call and you know are going to be able to meet you where you're at, yeah. no questions asked. And I think that that's, that's so wonderful and needed. And like you were saying, also feels so good to be on the receiving end of that sometimes. I think, especially lately, like I've been the one needing a lot of support and help, but then when that those people can need me, I get so much dopamine from that oh, too. Oh yeah, yeah. Because there's n we all want to feel needed and it makes us, it makes me feel less bad when I need yeah. them. It's kind of like a great little, trick is like if you're having a lousy day like call someone mm -hmm. and ask how they're doing yeah it's like the <laughs> you know? sushi quote when you're feeling helpless help someone yeah yeah you know it's crazy i um because i'm so musically oriented now i reached out to this guitarist named molly tuttle mm -hmm. who's incredible she's she's like 23 or 24 she went to berkeley school of music and she uh i think she comes from a very musical family but i i, I wrote her on instagram just like just out of the blue i'm a huge fan because she's totally a virtuoso you know she's like a master guitarist and she wrote me back and she was like oh my god i can't believe you're writing me i'm such a fan of yours she said um i have alopecia and you're and you're happy thank you more please means so much to me and so many people in the community because wow. she goes to conferences yeah. and stuff and posts about it on instagram and everything and i didn't know you know she wears wigs like i didn't right, know right. so we've struck up a nice friendship now because of this and you just hear from all these people that it did a lot of good yeah i met a woman in hawaii who had alopecia and she said i'm so glad that i have a film to show my kids when they're of a certain age to say like this is yeah. you know there's not a lot of cultural you know maybe a little more now but people wrote about it and said like the girl with cancer and it's like you didn't watch the movie like right. she literally hosts an alopecia awareness party like it couldn't and have been like more clear what she, in the film. what she has just this is another sidebar the movie won the audience award at Sundance. 
it was a very tough ticket to get at Sundance. There was all sorts of distribution stuff. We didn't come out for over a year after that. We won the audience award at almost every festival we went to. Like I knew the movie worked. We opened, I forget, in the spring of whatever, 2011 maybe. And the reviews were so mean about the movie. And I say this because I think there's a big lesson in there. The, the, the reviews were so vicious and so mean and so dismissive of me. And they kept referring to it as a sitcom. Do you think it was because of this? I think it was, I was being punished a little bit for being on a sitcom. I think I was punished for daring to make a movie with a happy ending that was not about the dark and dysfunctional. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's kind of what, at the time, indie film was really trafficking. In. Yeah. There's been some daylight in that. Like, it doesn't have to be that way. And maybe I contributed to that in some small way. But at the time, the indie film was not doing what I was doing. I remember watching it in college and thinking it was going to have a dark ending. Like, yeah. I just assumed it would because every movie the was whole, watching it was conceived that literally to not have a dark ending. Like, it was conceived to be triumphant. And that might be Which have is something why to I do. think it struck such a chord with me. Yeah, it might have something to do with just my constitutional optimism. That yeah. I actually, I can get very down, but I have some sort of resilient thing that's always like, let's find the daylight, let's find the silver lining, let's get out of this. Yeah, I think we're very similar in that way, yeah. which is, I think is why I relate to the way you articulate the But world. I'll tell you something that really helped me was, I think it's a, like Jean Cocteau quote or someone like, good, I don't know who said this, some French sad person. But he said, um, pay attention to what early criticism of your work says, because what they're criticizing is probably the most interesting and unique thing about it. And I thought, oh, they all kind of accuse me of being sentimental, which I really take issue with that word. I think sentimental sentimentality is unearned feeling, but I felt like I earned the feeling like I know when people cry at the Annie and Sam number two scene in the third act, I know that's earned or they wouldn't be crying. Yeah. So I think there's a difference between sentiment and sentimentality. Sentiment is feeling. You want your art to have feeling. Sentimentality is a kind of cloying, you know, you know when you're being manipulated and you're like, no, yeah, those violins are supposed to make me cry and I feel like I want to punch them. You right. know? But I also felt like in a weird way, I just doubled down on my life philosophy because of the criticism. I was like, this hit a nerve for a reason, for you, you yeah. know? And I, it was hard because I, I thought, oh, maybe I need to cleave more towards where the culture is. And maybe I, but I've always resisted this idea that cynicism and despair is more sophisticated than optimism and gratitude. I think it's, it's crap. It's ridiculous. They might even be equal, but one is just as valid as the other. And I really do believe that whatever one you lean into is the kind of life you're gonna lead. Yeah. So why wouldn't I wanna lean into the thing that is both gives me more joy and gives more joy to other people? It just feels like, you know, you're having a, a meal and it's like, well, let's cook a little more food so more people can enjoy it. Yeah. Rather than like, oh no, life is hard, so let's have tasteless right. food, you know? Right, I'll tell you this more later, but I was working on a project that felt cathartic when I started it, but it was started to make me sad. Yeah. And I just pivoted to something with a bit more joy. And I think that that's so helpful as a creator for your mental health yeah. and someone who like, uh, like I think we're very similar in this way. Then, and this is something I've gotten from you, the way you articulate it helped me to see myself, which is that I have this tendency towards melancholy, but I prefer to think that things happen for a reason and that, you know, we can communicate with the universe and try to feel better, whether it's true or not, I prefer to lean in that direction because yeah. it's Yeah, well, the, it's a funny thing about like the placebo right. effect. Like 
how brilliant. When people go, oh, that's just the placebo factor. Wait, I'm like, wait, your please. mind is convincing yes. you that you're healed? Great. Like, it's unbelievable. Yeah. But a friend of mine, Dion, says, I don't know if there's a God. I just know when I act like there is, my life gets a lot better, <laughs> you know? Exactly. So, I feel, yeah, I'm, I'm the same way. I mean, I, I, I feel like I would rather lean into something that feels more nourishing. Yeah. And, I, and I find that, like, when I, I have to believe what I put out there. And so, like, why wouldn't I want to train myself yeah. in a more uplifting way, yeah. you know? Which is not to say, by the way, sorry to cut you off, not to say that there aren't outrageous levels of despair in the world. There is outrageous injustice. There, you know, all those things can exist, but I sometimes get so down, you know, the Twitter mob and the, the kind of sky is falling crowd, which is like, they're also right. Like this stuff is actually happening, but I don't know if pouring kerosene on it is the way to do it. Richard Rohr, who I love, who's a- We love. We love, yeah. Family. <laughs> yeah. One of the phrases at the Center for Action of Contemplation is the, the best criticism of the bad is the practice of the better. Mm, so good. So I always feel like, well, yes, I understand there's despair in the world. There's despair in me. What is the best way I, thing I can do? I think it's like, why don't I tell a story about someone getting out of their despair? You know, someone said to me years ago, would you ever make a movie about a heroin addict? And I said, yeah, but I'd want to watch it them get sober. Yeah. Like, I don't want to watch someone fall down the drain. I want to watch them, yeah. you know, steer the plane upward, yeah. you know, to mix a lot of metaphors. Yeah, I, they're all working. <laughs> I just wanted to say one more thing about the critical mm -hmm. response of the movie. It was painful for me because I thought with the right twists of fate that the movie could have taken off. And it became more of a, like, slow burn, people like you telling people about it, which I've always loved those movies where those kind of like whispered, you know, you got to whisper it yeah, to people I mean, it or, or like hand it. Your essay about, oh, in, in ways. Oh yeah, exactly. Although that, that became a huge right. thing. But, but I mean, um, at the beginning, why you well, love things like that. Yeah, exactly. It feels like you own it a little bit more. Mm -hmm. That's how I feel about this movie. Which yeah. Is, yeah. Um, why related to that? But one of the things it did give me, and it's the same as like getting fired from my first pilot, like these things that knock you down or knock you, that stun you a little bit, because if you keep going, that's where all the lessons are. Yeah. And I felt like, you know, I was back at Sundance. Oh, this was interesting. The movie came out on a Friday. I was in New York doing press and I realized that most of the reviews were terrible. Except, this is so weird, some Christian publication loved it. And the Harvard Crimson loved it. Hmm. And I thought, okay, college kids and Christians love this movie. <laughs> like, there was an interesting th thing there, right? Yeah. Like, young people and also maybe, you know, spiritual or religious. Because I was, I yeah. think the movie's quite spiritual. I knew that the movie was getting slammed. But it, the same day, that Friday, I got word we got financing for liberal arts. So it's kind of like the universe yeah. is like, yeah, this is happening. And also this is happening. Yeah. And it was just like the message was clear. You're going to make another movie. Yeah. And then we were back at Sundance the next, you know, the following year after that. And so I That's think- That's a lesson. Yeah. Like, I think people think that a career is supposed to be just like peaks mm -hmm. or just, and it just never is. Like, everyone gets knocked around. Everyone gets slammed. Everyone has their time in jail, you know, where it's like, you're not allowed to- and I think the, the the keeping going, like resilience is a mighty thing. Yeah. Well, this is a line I was going to bring up in the movie from that scene with, with Charlie and Sam about walk it off. Yeah, walk it off. Yeah. I think that's about resilience. Mm -hmm. And I related to that part of dialogue in such a different way watching it now than I did yeah. 
I was knocked around a lot less then. And now I've had a few more knocks, yeah. you know, and it's. Kobe, I think that line came from Kobe, Kobe Smolders, who played Robin on How I Met Your Mother one day. She told me that her friends from Canada, they were all like, I think they all played soccer together. And she said, like, when 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 they would go through a breakup, like, they would always say, like, walk it off. <laughs> like, it just made me laugh. Like, you would say that emotionally to someone, yeah. like, just walk it <laughs> yeah. off. I think that's where I got that from. It is really funny. Yeah. And then it's also, sometimes when people tell you, like, you can just decide to be over the sadness. I think that sometimes that can be insensitive. Mm-hmm. Like, sometimes we really have to go through a grief process and it just yeah. is over when it's over. And other times... Or it's nonlinear. Yeah, exactly. It'll come back. But other times I feel like we can just walk it off. Mm -hmm. Sometimes. Yeah. You know, you just really need to move your body. Mm -hmm. You know, it's great wisdom in that. Richard Rohr says we only learn one of two ways, through great love or great suffering. Yeah. Those are the two ways. And I feel like it's the things that make us more resilient are how we grow and become better people. And it can be a It also makes us better friends. Yes. More empathetic people. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, when you've been knocked around and you've lived. Okay, before we move out of this vein of friendship to get to another theme, there's this line where Rasheen says to Sam, Sam, you're my best friend. I'm someone who's so incredibly loyal that I can feel like I have, and you're someone who knows so many people and so many people love you. Do you ever struggle with that, of feeling like you're spread too thin friend-wise? Do you have like a few friends at once? Do you feel like you kind of rank your friends? What is best (laughs) friendship to you? I feel like the reason the kid says that is because I feel like it's a little more of a youthful thing to be Mm -hmm. like my best friend. I have one friend that like if I want, I have a couple friends that if I like, I want to laugh. Mm-hmm. I'll call them. Those friends, by the way, the two I'm thinking of, I can also go very deep with. Yeah. So that's a very complete friendship. I have a friend from high school who was like my best and friend in high school. And he said, we have so much history. And like, we just had a beautiful conversation the other day because we had a hiccup in our friendship years ago that we were totally past. But he so sweetly called because he said, I, I feel like I need to clean some stuff up still from that. And it was just like, wow, this is a deep thing, you know, to be friends with someone since you were 13. I have other friends that I meet and I'm just like, how have we not known each other? You know, just instant, right? So I think there's all sorts of levels to it. I certainly don't rank or, you know, I kind of go with a lot of times like, you know, I live mostly in LA, but I've been in New York the last four years, like half the year. And I have a big community here, Mm -hmm. you know, so I get to see my New York friends when I'm here and go back and see the LA friends. Oh, something that I don't mention a lot, but might be of interest. I was a camp counselor when I was like 16, I think, 15, 16. And there was this kid who was in foster care and he was this black kid and his name was Rasheen. And he was just the cutest, most adorable kid, but he would get in trouble. Like he was, a he would hit people. And for some reason I developed a friendship with him. And when I took him into my group and when he was in my group, he was perfectly behaved. And I left, I left that summer cause I had to do something and they put him in this other group and he started misbehaving again. And I reached out to his foster mom and asked if, if I could like see him and just hang out. And uh, she was very suspicious and kind of didn't understand. And she wouldn't let me see him. And for some reason it always haunted me. Like what happened to that kid? And that's where he came from. Wow. Like was just like me, trying to be in a fictional context, make that kid okay. Wow, I had a whole series of questions that we just covered with that. Yeah. Two things about that. Did you ever find the actual Rasheen? No, I didn't even know his, I don't don't remember his last name. That's really special. I wonder if he ever 
Who knows? Who knows? And then what about the actor? Such a cute kid. Where is uh, he now? He's amazing. Did you keep in touch? He came to a bunch of the festivals and he was just as cute as can be, Michael. He was amazing. Really composed and he had a really sweet mom who let him be. She reached out to me a couple of years ago. He was having some an issue I don't want to go into and I, I gave her my best assessment of it, but I haven't heard from him. I hope he's He well. must be what? Uh, oh my God, he's like 18 now. Wow. 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 Yeah. He was a deer, like a total... I got real emotional when we wrapped, picture wrapped him and said goodbye to him. Yeah. Yeah. He was really, really sweet and seemed to understand the role in some sort of intuitive way. I remember at the festivals, you know, I did the the credit sequence at the end where I show the actors. Mm -hmm. He always got the the biggest applause, you know, people, I think people really love a non hammy kid performance, you know, it's really pleasing. So there's a line near the beginning where Richard Jenkins character gives Sam some feedback about his writing. And he says, engaging characters who sound like real people. And you do that so well in your writing. They're engaging characters who, who sound like real people. Was that a piece of feedback that you've gotten or that you've, where did that line come from? I'm trying to I feel remember. Like it's good writing yeah. advice. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted it to be a little bit meta in that he's kind of yeah. talking about, about the story that yeah. we're all in at the same time. Doesn't he say, then he gives kind of the negative feedback to the protagonist, Sam, who you play. And he says that the protagonist in Sam's work is kind of just kind of. Yeah. Which is a line that I think of all the time. Uh-huh. I'm afraid of being kind of just kind of. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Which I think kind of leans back to what we were talking about of like, just lean into who you are because yeah. that's the worst feeling that you can have. Yeah. So, okay. I'm now remembering all this. God, it's been a while. So the hardest Part of my scripts is the writing of the me character because... You mean the character you play? Yeah, because I have the least insight into my character. And a lot of times you make yourself the passive center of something where things happen to you because we don't actually feel like we have agency sometimes in our lives. Like things are just happening. And it's I, I know a lot of writers go through this where their protagonist that's closest to you can be the flattest in certain way. Other people get are very vibrant, you know, who are, are constellating around them. Is that a word, constellating? I like I it. I think, yeah. <laughs> so what I think I was doing was criticizing myself. I used to do this thing, which I think was born more of insecurity, which is I would call out, yeah, you say my, I would criticize myself yeah. before someone else could say it. Like, yeah, I do like if you think that this protagonist is whatever, I know he is and yeah. I'm going to put it yeah. in the movie. Yeah, let me tell you how I have a big nose and that I feel uncomfortable about this and all the things. So then all it's just the out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's a, I think in some ways, and you might have a question about this because it's a big part of the movie, but the, the, the conversation that Charlie and Sam have in the bar where he says, life is just a continuing series of realizing what an idiot you were five years ago or whatever. I think I put that in there because I wanted, I knew that I was saying certain things very baldly in that movie that I wondered if I'd be embarrassed about in about 10 years. Here we are. Yeah. And I suspect there are things in that movie that would make me cringe now that I wouldn't say so, so plainly or so unguardedly. And yet I knew that I had to make that movie like, I just had to make that movie. It was what I needed to say at that time in my life. Had to let it out. Yeah, exactly. And then I also wanted to be mature enough or or have enough vision over the horizon to go, yeah, in five years, this might not be the movie you love. Or 
certain parts of this are, are going to make you cringe. And yet that's evidence of growth. That means you're growing. If you don't look back on yourself five and 10 years ago and wince a little bit, yeah. you're not what are quite, you doing? what are you doing? Right? So I, I, I wanted to leave room for me as a, as a, as a storyteller to update myself, but I also wanted somehow people to know, I know that. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. I know that I'm writing a movie that's like a kind of twenties movie. I had a couple people who read it and said, the twenties quarter life crisis movie um, is an annoying genre for people who are past it. But people said, this is the best version of it. <laughs> you know, like, like this is the, you did the best version of this movie. And maybe that's true, but there's a lot of people who, like me, go through that period or younger people and not everyone feels that way who need those moves. So it doesn't mean they shouldn't be made. Yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot of people, it's like, if people don't like that movie, they might want to call it bad. But what I wish they would rather, I would rather they would say that wasn't for me. Because it's for some people. Yeah. That movie's for some people. Hi. It's for you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe in 10 years, can we get a big plate of cookies <laughs> and watch it together? Yeah. And let's see what you think. I actually years. have this idea because I haven't seen a lot of the How I Met Your Mother episodes. Uh -huh. So people come up to me and they'll quote lines and I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. Like it was one day in 2007 where I did that, but yeah. you've watched it 12 times. Like it's your Bible, you know? Right. So I have this idea that I might in like five years do like a project, like a, I don't know, like a blog project where I literally sit down and yeah, watch all the I episodes. Yeah, I want to do it with you. I want to help. Yeah, I've never, I've never, I, I've probably seen like 40% of the episodes, if that. And I'm curious, like, what is this show that everyone loves so much? I mean, I get it. I yeah. know I was there. I filmed it. But it would be curious with some distance to look back. And it, same with my movies. I'm excited to make another movie because I feel like there's something about having three movies where you people can actually see a kind of vision as a filmmaker. Yeah. I think you could put liberal arts and happy thank you together and see something like, mm -hmm. like same voice, but at the same time, and you know what, there's a lot of people that like absolutely prefer liberal arts to happy. Thank you more, please. A lot of people have said that to me. Yeah. And I, but, but the, there's something very interesting about the partisans for happy. Thank you that I I'm kind of very interested in them. Like, why do you like that movie so much? I love liberal arts, but if I had to choose yeah, yeah. on a deserted Island, I might, I mean, I love that movie. I don't yeah. even think I don't, I really do, but I would choose this one. If I was a band, like to put it in a musical metaphor, I feel like there's something raw about Happy Thank You that is like... It's a collage. That's kind Yeah, of but it I... just feels like there. I captured some sort of energy that... I said to my DP when we were talking about the look of it, I was describing like shots and he was like, D I'll, we'll figure out the shots, but like, tell me how you want the movie to feel. Mm. And I said, I want it to feel like Van Morrison on vinyl. Yeah. Like that's how I want the movie to feel. And he was like, got it. And he came up with, he used anamorphic lenses, which give it a more cinematic feel. He, I didn't want it to feel too like glossy, like kind of like studio New York, you know, like Upper West Side. I didn't want that. I was like, I told, I kept telling him I want to feel the gum on the sidewalks. Where did you shoot it? We shot it all around lower Manhattan mostly. I wonder yeah. if I've seen, been into places that you shot or- I, Right I outside like of Rockwood Music Hall yeah. is where Sam walks on Allen Street, that oh, island actually, in the middle. Yeah, I meant to write, that was another thing I think I really, that really struck me this time watching it, having lived in New York. Yeah. And ha being here, I saw it in a whole new way. I'm like, yeah. oh, that's uptown, that's down. I know where this, yeah. having that orientation was yeah. another thing. And you know, I've, I've talked about this, but like, oh, can we plug my newsletters on Yeah, here? of Did course. Plug, yeah, I write like a monthly, or I it's write them best. every two months. Yeah, just like an essay and kind of things I recommend. And so many great links and resources. Yeah, and like, you can sign up. I think it's on my we'll have the Twitter link. page and yes. on my Instagram, there's a sign up. 
your first like heartbreak, mm-hmm. you have no context for it. Yes. So you're dead. You're dead. You're, you, it will kill you. You're never going to live. Right. Your fourth heartbreak, you're like, well, I've been here before. It's, it still hurts, but I have survived. Like, I know that this, this time in the dark wood ends. You're right. Or any sort of like life, you know, struggle. I think that it's just, that's one of the mercies of aging is you get a bigger sample size. So you can go, oh yeah, I remember this. Or you have a very dear friend who's like, let me share you my story of what happened when I was in your situation. And let me share with you all the gifts that came out of that. That's really interesting. And it's so funny we're recording this today and doing this today because I'm on this, like I've had these last six, I keep saying six months, but it's now July. So eight months of just, I've been having a weird year after this breakup. And I think you told me that when we had dinner with John months ago that, you know, you'll, you'll have a bigger sample size, the older you get, this is just your first one. That's why it's so intense right now. And I didn't really believe you, but now that I'm getting a bit further from it, I can see that because I've heard from so many other people, the same thing. Can you just believe me? I should have. have, Come on. I'm not steering you. But it is really true. Soft stories are what I believe are these tender, vulnerable, connecting stories that when you tell me one or a friend tells me one, like you saying about how the criticism actually did sting. When I hear that from you or hear about your heartbreak, it makes me feel less alone and it instantly binds us. Totally. It makes us feel connected. Yeah. And that's been a real gift of this whole thing that I've been through. And that, yeah. I think that's the gift of, you know, it was like, you know, that TED talk, make good art after you yeah. go through something. Make well, it it's art. also, I think the more like of a deep dive, I kind of like spend more time with Brene Brown, you realize like her work's very trailblazing. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a reason she's, you know, made an impact yeah. culturally because this idea that we connect through vulnerability yeah. or, you know, this is more like kind of men's work, but if you read Robert Bly, like Iron John, these fairy tales about Iron John was like super strong because he knew his wounds. He knew, he knew where, you know, where his hurt Their was. Their strength and vulnerability. Yeah, yeah. And they, you know, there's a, some Rinpoche talks about like all true warriors are brokenhearted. You know, that it gives you a softness, which actually allows you to be more limber in battle. Yeah, because when we're rigid, it, we're, it's more, we're more easy to break. I love that thing from the Tao Te Ching that talks about like the old, um, be like the young supple branch that bends and yeah. then retains its shape. Not like the old brittle twig that snaps. And I see, I, I really worry culturally, I really don't want to get political here, but I sometimes feel like the news, especially like Fox, like they really play into people's fears and they make people very rigid and unadaptable. And it's very worrisome because they're, we're creating, we're actually creating weak people. And I mean that spiritually. I don't have kids, but like a, a lesson that I would, I don't know if I'll ever have kids, but that's beside the point. One of the things that I wish I had been taught and that I would like to kind of put out there is like, be soft, be soft and adaptable. The, 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 the rigid, like making an enemies list, like if only these people would change it, you know, all your pro, all of my problems have to do with you. And that kind of victim thing, that stoking of resentment, it's so dangerous. I heard this beautiful thing, you know, this rewritten serenity prayer, you know, the serenity prayer, yeah, is, of course. Yeah. but the rewritten serenity prayer is grant me the serenity to accept the people I cannot change the courage to change the one I can and the wisdom to know that oh, one man. is me, oh, you know? So good. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like that speaks to what we were talking about a couple of weeks ago with our parents, so many people in our lives, but I yeah. think especially with family, it's like a big and one. And coming back to Happy Thank You More, please, I feel like part of the every five years you realize what mm-hmm. an asshole you were five years ago, part of that is stay curious enough about your life and 
limber enough, flexible enough that you can change your mind. Like, wouldn't it be so great if a politician was like, yeah, I, uh, I thought that at one point and I've just, I've reconsidered, like, I, I don't, and I might reconsider this. Totally. Like I, I, I would be, it was something that I really loved about Obama was just, he felt humble to me, like in some sort of deep way. Like he, he was like, I'm doing the best I can. Well, that's why call-up culture is so damaging, I think, totally. because it doesn't allow us to grow and change, which we've just talked about at length is like what being a person is, Yeah, you know? And I've grown up on the internet and I totally cringe at the first several, the last episode I did with you, I cringe at, you know? And I was so excited to have you on the podcast, but I- I don't remember anything cringy about it. <laughs> well, thank you. But I was, you know, it was five years ago. And yeah. I'm, we yeah. change so quickly, especially in your 20s. And but, it, but again, that is evidence of your own growth. Like if you look back and you kind of bless everything you did five or 10 years totally. ago, like what do, who are you? Exactly. Yeah. And I think this being malleable, like I, I hope you can come tonight or I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send you the site because I think you'll really love it of like this concept of soft stories is this essay I'm reading, I submitted it for- Roxanne Gay's new magazine. Oh, yeah. But it's basically, it's called The Softness Spectrum. And it's about, I think this so relates to eating disorders. And there's a really nice tie-in, I think, between this rigidity and this hardness that is so comes from such a selfish place to the softness that comes when you can change mm -hmm. and when you can be adaptive. And you have to do that to be a good human being. And to it, there's a self-honesty that comes with that. And I think in wellness, which is being co-opted by the diet industry, by capitalism, yeah. softness and changeability and not being rigid, which is kind of my go-to vice, is like this discipline and this rigidity is, I don't know, it's been my kind of Achilles heel, but yeah. I think also is, do you know the actor David Harbour? Yeah, totally. I know him. I knew him years ago, but yeah. I feel like you guys should be friends. <laughs> I feel like he, I've been listening. We know to each other enough to say hi, but I haven't seen him in I years. I feel yeah. like you guys should hang out yeah. because he's like, um, he should be in our, the way he speaks about the world is very similar oh, to okay. us. Okay. Interesting. And he said this thing about how your gifts and your illnesses are linked, but you don't, he looks at the world in a similar way of like what we were talking about, about making something positive. Yeah. I heard a really wonderful thing, which might be apropos of nothing, but it's some psychologist and he, I forget even where I heard this, but I heard this in the last week, <laughs> but he said, we have two choices. We can um, try to be right, which gets us nowhere. Mm -hmm. Like it's just circular. Like no one's going to budge if you try to be right. Or you can just commit your life to be wonderful, <laughs> which he says is like letting go of the right being, yeah. you know, and just like, no, 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 I'm more committed to life being wonderful. Yeah. You know? Oh, this is the most meandering conversation, which I which I love. Well, the movie's yeah. kind of meandering. So, yeah, yeah, which is great, which is also why I love it. Yeah. Okay, we got a lot to cover, though, okay, Josh. Okay. okay, so the couples in the movie. So let's start with Sam 2 and Annie. Yeah. Sam 2 and Annie, their meet cue is maybe my favorite thing in any movie. They There's this scene where he just comes to the floor apropos of nothing and he's like why aren't we better friends and then that line where he's like everyone knows the party's in philanthropic giving woo woo yeah. like i love that part it's just it's so wonderful and there's this he's this loving ball of sunshine yeah. and she's someone needing a loving ball of sunshine but can't see that and yeah. or that's the way i i see it and she has this dramatic shift herself from being in this really toxic relationship with a musician that she keeps going back to. And then by the end, she ends up being adored for herself, for her true self by someone who can see her right. more clearly than she can even see herself. And so that's my question for you. Like, do you think that that's possible to be 
loved and in a relationship before you love yourself? Because that's kind of how I see that happening. That's a great question. And I don't know the answer to it. <laughs> in that the motivation for writing that was in some ways to like, bless my friend. This is the kind of guy I would love to see you with, you know? Okay, yeah. Yeah. And that's a great thing about making movies or any art is you can kind of both show the world as you see it and also show the world as you'd like it to be. So, yeah, I mean, that that's where that came from. And I always wrote it with Tony Hale in mind. I knew him a little bit and I just was like, and it's so great. I, one of the things I really love about all my movies is like all the actors in there have gone on to like have great, great careers. There was one year where Zoe Kazan, Kate Mara, Richard Jenkins and Allison Janney were all nominated for Emmys. Wow. And I was like, the Josh Radner players are yeah. doing very well. <laughs> you know how to pick them. Oh, and maybe Pablo too. Wow. Yeah. He plays Charlie. He plays Charlie, yeah. I'm not sure. I don't know the answer to that. I do know that sometimes when we can't see ourselves clearly, we have to outsource it to someone who sees us more clearly. I had a meditation teacher years ago who said, we are hopeless at seeing ourselves truly and clearly. He said, if you need to get an opinion of yourself, believe the opinion of those in your life to whom you bring great benefit and joy. Let them tell you who you are, because that's closer to who you are than any of your, you know, shame-filled nonsense about who you are. So I guess that that storyline was all about, you know, I had this kind of like a Boy Scout rule with my, my characters, like leave them better than you found them. So I feel like I'm always trying to find ways to transform them. And a lot of times that's their interactions with people. It's collisions. You know, it's, I always feel like I'm a scientist and I've got a little Petri dish and I'm adding these different elements and watching how it combusts. Right. Yeah. And I felt really strongly that this guy just got it in his head that he could love her and that he did love her and that he saw, you know, he takes those photographs of her and yeah. she's more beautiful than she's ever looked is kind of how I see that. She, she's like, wow. I mean, on some level you could be like, this guy's creepy and he's a stalker. <laughs> and on another, you're like, no, he's just, he's seeing her. Yeah, I think I kind of went through that arc watching the film. You take on Annie's perspective of how she's, how that's unfolding for her. Because at the beginning, I think I did think it was creepy and he was annoying. And then by the well, end, you're supposed I loved to. Him. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the way I described that role to the casting director and even to Tony is I said, this is a guy that you watch go from a character actor to a leading man. Yeah. And I told Seamus at that final shot of him when he's smiling, I said, make Tony Hale look like as big a movie star as you can right now. You know, just the lighting and everything. And that's where casting is fascinating because I was actually using the cultural idea of Tony at that point was Buster from Arrested Development. So when he comes on screen, you're like, oh, there's Buster. Like there's that goofball, insane comic actor. And as the thing goes on, he just becomes more real and grounded and lovable. And you can't dismiss him after a while, nor can she. The One of the best lines in the whole film happens when Annie is explaining this on the phone to Sam number one, you. And she says, let's be people who deserve to be loved, who are worthy of love. Talk to me about, about that line and how that came to you. I'm trying to remember. I wanted, again, so like, in the pinball of it all, right? I mean, one thing that I, I find amusing is that like, you never have characters in the one movie that have the same name. And I just like this idea, like yeah, she had these two Sams funny. in her life. Yeah, that you was know? really funny. But so Annie gets affected by Sam number two and really falls in love with him and describes the molecules yes. changing. 
And she suddenly feels this different sense the of herself. molecules of his, his face. His face, yeah. I'm assuming everyone who's listening right now will have watched the movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You should actually say, like, take a 90-minute yes. pause, go watch the yeah. movie, and come, come back, back and listen exactly. to this conversation. So many spoilers. Yeah. yeah. So she's affected by Sam number two, and then she calls Sam number one and says what she learned, and that then affects him. So it was just a kind of, you know, chain reaction. Yeah. Which is weird, because... The song, I'm just realizing this. Cool. The song, when Annie opens her eyes, is a Cloud Cult song. Yeah. it's called Chain Reaction. Oh, my God. No, it's not. It's called Chemicals Collide. Oh. Well, but it I also think, works. For yeah, the... which also works. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Such a great soundtrack. Oh, thanks. Yeah. yeah. Jamie, my very good childhood friend, Allie, is like dear, dear, dear friends with her. I think she's in New Orleans. I think she was taking a long break from music. She was doing some nonprofit stuff. And now I think she's back making cool. music, thank God, because she's a, a genius, I think. But yeah, Jesse found her and we just got obsessed with her so and cool. started going to her shows. And I became friendly enough with her that I was like, can you contribute some songs? And then after a while, I realized her music and her voice and the tone of what she was writing was like, I wanted it to be the soundtrack. Yeah. And I've always loved like Simon and Garfunkel and The Graduate and Amy Mann doing Magnolia and Cat Stevens and... Um, Harold and Maude, like, like when you, there's one singular yes. voice on a soundtrack, I find it to be very compelling. Yeah. And there's a couple of other songs in Happy Thank You. There's a lot of music in it. But there was something about having JMA score the whole thing. She also wrote that song, Never Be Daunted, which, which got shortlisted for the Oscars, which was super oh, cool. Wow. She wrote that song and she wrote the lyric, uh, What Are You So Afraid Of? Yeah, I think of that line all the time. But Charlie says that to Mary Catherine and she wrote that before she read the script. No way. And she was oh, like, that line is in the it? script. Wow, like, I yeah. always just assumed she... No, she wrote it before she had read it. Wow, yeah. I listen to that soundtrack all the time too. Walking around New York City, I can feel like I'm- It's a real New York-y yeah. soundtrack, yeah. It's great. It's so good. Thanks. Okay, so speaking of Mary Catherine and Charlie, that relationship- is so sweet yet so tumultuous. Yeah. And again, another one that like I related to totally differently watching it when I was older, but there's this part when they're when things are getting hard in their relationship and she talks about when they first met and her nostalgia for that novelty. She says this line about this moment where he came into focus for her and now he's out of focus and that's such a relatable feeling, that moment, I think, yeah. in relationships. Was that based on a feeling that you had? Well, I'm just realizing that when Annie talks about the molecules and his face changing, like how our relationships and just life alters our vision all the time. It can upgrade our vision. It can blur our vision. You know what I mean? Yeah. That was something that happened with Rebecca, my ex. It was before we were together. And at NYU, there was, this is like the late 90s, there was one phone in the like lobby and everyone would have to like line up if you wanted to make a call. Yeah. They, like no one had cell phones or we were about to have cell phones. Kind of. And uh, I was on the phone and she was up there. She, she had graduated a couple years before me. She was working with people on the hall uh -huh. and she rounded the corner and she was wearing like this dress. Like she was just wearing a dress uh -huh. and it was just like a normal day. Uh -huh. yeah. And I knew her a little bit, but I always thought she was beautiful and I had this little crush on her. And for some reason, she rounded the corner and I put the phone on my chest and I said, where, where are you going, prom? prom? Oh, that line, and you she said la it. she laughed so hard. And when we got together, she told me, she said, that was the day you came into focus for me. Because I was like, oh, he's really funny. And she, you know, you know, you know, people who like, she loved 
being made fun of in a sweet yes. way. And she nothing loved makes me it. feel more seen. She than like loved being, it, yes. right? So whenever I would do those little things to her, it just gave her so much joy. And that was like the first one. Oh. And for some reason, it always stayed with me as like, where are you going prom? Wow. You know? So that's so where that, that came from. So that line is in the movie. That was the next thing I was yeah. going to ask you about. I will say that one of my favorite things about writing a movie that feels kind of lifelike and where is that everything's usable. Like old things I said or overheard or, yeah. you know, you're just like, you have this container that can, you're like, oh, that goes in there too. Why not? You yeah. Know? Yeah. Well, there's this part that comes after that where... Mary Catherine's talking about how Charlie says, where are you going prom? And then she says, finally, there he was, a guy who wouldn't let me get away with anything. And that's one of my favorite parts and just like goes right in because yeah. that's, I think that speaks to what you were just saying. Oh, the other, the other side of that is Rebecca <laughs> told me she, in the morning, she put on that dress. She said, this is way too fancy to wear, but I think I can get away with it. Like, that's what she, she was actually like, this is a ridiculous dress to wear to like an improv theater rehearsal, yeah. you know? And then I was, I, I literally just called her out on the very thing she had thought that morning. So that was why. It's so, I think about that all the, I'm like, have a aversion for like, getting dressed is hard for anyone, yeah. I think, but I have a big aversion for like being too overdressed. I want to just like fit in Me and not too. be like, I don't want to make a thing Even of if it. someone says like, hey, I love your, like, don't say it. Please. Don't compliment I me. You're not supposed to be noticing yeah. what I'm wearing. I just want you to like it, but not know why. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, and I want to feel totally appropriate. Like I'm right yeah. in the pack mm -hmm. of this is what everyone's wearing. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It's, it's actually funny because I'm playing this super flashy movie star who wears rings and chest hair and like big polyester, Mustache. like outrageous costumes. And I, and it's funny, it, it's helped me. It's helped me get a little bold, not bolder, like I'm wearing a white t-shirt, yeah. but like, it's helped me feel like, oh, I can maybe, you know, his name's Lonnie Flash. You gotta oh go for God. it. Oh my God. Yeah. It's funny, Lacey Phillips, she has this great line that she always says, what you don't own owns you. Wow. And she's someone who's very striking and wears um, like hats and like just so comfortable fashion wise and really inspires me in that way. And she really helped me to just like, Think about that when you're going. She was kind of my flash. You uh -huh, know? Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like you get, you kind of need that person to like. I kind of channel her. But that's that. That's that line in relationships. That's like, you kind of have to toe of being loving to someone, but also making them feel seen. But you, I think, relationships at their best are when you're helping each other grow and change yeah. and calling each other out on things. And that's what I think this relationship really shows. Yeah, they're they're deep. And I thought that Zoe and Pablo like really, really trusted me and trusted each other. They knew each other. So that was helpful. And they they just I remember coming home what I told my girlfriend at the time who, who I was with when we were shooting this movie. I was like, I think that this is like a really honest portrayal of like love and, yeah. and relationship. And yeah. I think they're really doing it. The big fight scene is one that and this is like kind of embarrassing and weird, but I remember kind of feeling like I was in a movie and fights that I've had in relationships and thinking back to that scene <laughs> because she says, she says this line where she's like, I'm so scared and you're my best friend. Like she doesn't know who else to tell, but she's like, this <laughs> yeah, is yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's like that. a conflict of interest. Yeah. yeah like yeah. I, I would always feel that way in a fight where I'm like, I want to talk to you about how uncomfortable I am about you. Right. You know? <laughs> right. Or like when you break up with someone and you're like, oh, I wish I could yes. talk to my ex about yes. my breakup because I'm yes. having a really hard time exactly. and they're the person I'm closest to. Yeah. Exactly. It's such an uncomfortable feeling. Yeah. I was actually thinking we cut this 
huge fight, another like on the street fight scene. I think there were just too many Charlie Mary Catherine fights in the in the last analysis. But I was just thinking about that other. There was a whole other fight. You know, I just had them fighting a lot. Yeah, they're yeah. good at it. Yeah. It's also through their storyline, you really cover. We've mentioned this a little bit. New York and LA. And so that I want to talk about places a little bit. And there's this quote about LA that I'm going to read to you. And I want to know where this came from. And if you still feel this way, yeah. Charlie says this, he says, LA is like a blank canvas. It's a collection of neighborhoods and it basically reflects whatever you are back at you. So if you're happy, LA is great. If you're not LA sucks, but it has nothing to do with Los Angeles because there is no such thing. I mean, that's kind of what we were talking about of, Wherever you go, there you are. Yeah. I mean, you could also make that case for life itself, mm-hmm. not just Los Angeles. I remember just having that thought about LA. I realized like there's no unifying culture to LA other than the sunshine. And there's just, you know, if you go to Eagle Rock, it's so different than Venice. And it's yeah. so different. I mean, all these different places are so different. I mean, it's like the New York, but just not as... New York feels like it has more cohesion just because you're all stuck on this island right. together. LA is sprawling. Right. And, and, and I just realized that LA, New York um, can affect your mood more than LA. Yes. LA is like, it's just this kind of idea. It's like a dream you know, and you're, you're there and you're probably there for a reason. And I just got this feeling it was a mirror. Like it just reflected you back to you. I told that to a gal that I'm, I knew her and I, you know, like those people that you're like, I've never had a pleasant interaction with them. Like, <laughs> like she was just so kind of, she was always kind of sour about something and I would always try, but I, yeah. I, I finally gave up, you know? Yeah. And I remember she, she was, she was living in LA and she was miserable. Mm-hmm. And I told her that theory as a, tr- like, really trying to help. Oh, God. Did it not land? She looked at me. She goes, are you saying I'm depressed? <laughs> and I was like, I got to get out of here. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> I mean, I could see where she would say that, but it was also like. Yeah, that was that's not. not the, that's not yeah, what I was saying. She wasn't really. landing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Not your person. Yeah. It is interesting that you set this movie in New York, and I've heard you say this before, and I quote this back to people all the time when I talk about New York, of how you said this to me once. You're highs are really high here and your lows are really low. Like highs are euphorically awesome and your bad days are like terribly awful and it makes a better set setting for a movie. It's a, it's a dramatic city. Yeah. 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 And I think that that's something having lived here, it really made me think of this a lot of why I'm here and what that means. And again, catching me on like a weird day because I'm also moving. But Charlie says this thing about New York where he says, we might as well just live somewhere else and visit and actually do things. And he also says, you're miserable more than you're not. And then she's like, well, that's not New York's fault. And there's just a really great, there's so much about, there's so much about New York. And he says this other thing of, we'll have money eventually. And then he just says, I'm tired. And it's just this really like that whole scene about New York just like really hit me. It's yeah. really visceral of it's hard to live here. It is it's hard. magical and wonderful. Yeah. But it's also really hard and dark. And it's also like, no in between. some ways, it's a perfect city for people in their 20s who have the energy to do it. Like a lot of people, you know, who are in their 30s and 40s are like in LA. <laughs> if you're, you know, kind of industry people, like people migrate out there because it's, it's an easier lifestyle. And I'm embarrassed to say people always ask me about New York or LA and I'm like, I'm a huge fan of Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. I love it. And I feel like I have to whisper that. But I love California. I love, I love not getting crushing seasonal depression in February. And I just, um, the lifestyle is really lovely out there. 
But I love coming to New York and I love working here and I seem to be working here a lot. So yeah. I, I really have the best of both. I mean, I think that's the ideal of everyone is to be able to. Well, have they're that. so different. They're uh, the strengths of one or the weaknesses of the mm-hmm. other and vice versa. So. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's something too, you know, we're both from the Midwest and I think that's another theme of the movie that I would say too is places and it's, it's more subtle, but have thinking about moving and non-attachment to a place. I feel like I'm, did you ever see that movie away we go? With, yeah, yeah. I feel like I'm kind of about to be in that moment of my life of right. trying to figure out, I thought it was New York forever and I don't think it's forever, but trying right. to figure out, I'm in this unique position where like I can live anywhere. Yeah. Where do I want to be? And so I'm kind of like embarking on that myself. And I think it's practicing non-attachment to a place because it's what we keep saying over and over again, wherever you go, there you are. Yeah. You have to like make the blank canvas for yourself have you ever gotten attached to a place or do you have nostalgia with that i think i get attached to every place i've noticed this thing about myself where when it's time to move or leave mm-hmm. i am overwhelmingly nostalgic yeah i hi. get like really <laughs> sad i mourn it mm-hmm. i actually sometimes will thank you more please the place mm-hmm. like i'll say like this was great you know thank you more please which, by the way, that's a prayer. Yeah. Like, that's where the spiritual thing, you know, it's, it's literally kind of communicating with the universe. Yeah. I've also noticed this um, kind of like your thing about going to Spain. I have intense resistance to moving anywhere. Yeah. On the other side of the move, when I've actually landed and unpacked and what, I always find myself really grateful. Or even if there's a, like a lag time, I, I always say, like, don't freak out for like a couple weeks out of place. Like, give it time. Because I'm I'm really adaptable. That's why I don't. I don't stress so much about money because I remember being so happy in my one bedroom for $750 a month in, in LA, like really genuinely happy. And if I, and, and, you know, let's hope not, but like barring some calamity, like if I had to live back there, I could, I could figure that out. You know what I mean? So I think that we resist change and we long for change all at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think I heard Duncan Trussell say this once of like, all we want is novelty. Like that's what we're all yeah. searching for. Like love is novelty. Right, but or also, romance, or like the early phases right. of love or novelty. But I'm, and we're always like, that's what we crave as people. But I'm someone who's so grounded and wants my it, change is messy, and yeah. moving is messy. And are you a Virgo? No, I'm Taurus. Oh, what are you again? Leo. Leo. So oh, happy birthday! Out. Yeah, thanks. Happy birthday! Yeah, yeah. I don't know. It's. I think it's good for us. I think it's healthy for us to. Um, put ourselves in uncomfortable situations. That's why travel, I think, is so good because it Absolutely. forces that. I also think, uh, this is another thing I've said, I never know where I and how I said it, but you seem to know everything I've ever yeah, said. Like, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> the, like travel is like, when we stare at the same things, like literally yeah. stare at the same things, we think the same thoughts. Always. And when you dislocate yourself and throw yourself off balance by being in another place where maybe they don't speak the same language, you're like, you're just seeing a new landscape. You're, that's why... Um, I always write a ton of songs when I travel. I wrote four songs in a week in Australia in Byron Bay because I was like alone and Rise had just been canceled. And I was like looking at all this, the ocean from a different perspective. And all these songs came to me. So one of the best things you can do to shake things up creatively is hit the road. I think that's this this spot that I'm in. And somebody told me she actually had cancer. And I just had a you know heartbreak. But she was like, you can't heal in the same place you got sick. And mm. so when she was going through chemo, she moved apartments. She got a new bed. Oh, wow. She like got all new underwear and clothes. And that's she just started fresh. And I feel like that was kind of percolating for me all winter. And then that's when I decided to move and go on this big trip. And I was just like... Being here, being in this room just felt 
like I need to get out yeah, all the yeah. time. It's also weird. I, I sometimes feel if you pay attention, you know when it's time to go. Mm-hmm. Like if you get quiet enough, like I, I remember a while back, I thought I was going to be in my house forever. And something in me went, it's time to go. Mm-hmm. It's time to go. And I'm, and I'm going. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's destabilizing, but I think that's good for us. You know? Well, it's also, it, you know, like in working out, you throw yourself off balance yeah. to engage different muscles. Yeah. yeah. Mississippi and Sam. That's the next couple I want to talk about. They meet in the wild and. In the wild. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Pre-dating apps. Yeah. Oh, right. Yeah. And they. Is that what they call it? That's what I call it's it. It's a good term. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. That's what I, I'm, I have an aversion to any of those. So yeah. I like only do in the wild. <laughs> yeah. And they decide to have a three night stand. Is that based off of anyone's experience? Really? <laughs> yeah, never, I think it's a great idea. I've never talked to anyone about it. It didn't end up being a three night stand, but it was it was pitched because you got scared. Yeah, it was kind of it was not it was someone I was going to fall in love with. It was I mean, it was just ridiculous. It was like a drunken kind of scheme that we were kind of having fun with this idea. It's a really good idea. Well, I yeah. was thinking about it because I think that sex is so intimate, not just because of like the act of sex. It's to me, it's like the before and after. It's like seeing someone in their natural environment of like how they are like in the morning and when someone's like that. So that's, I think it's a like really good idea to get to know someone quickly. It's like, (laughs) I mean, there's probably pros and cons in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I haven't done it, but I like, I'm open to it, I guess. It is a kind of like romantic urban idea of like, Let's just be married for three days and see how that goes. I mean, that's what I always want is like when that's why I think dating is so uncomfortable for me because I just like the coziness of a relationship. Like I want to just like get right there. It's hard though. I'm I'm kind of the same way, but I, you can short, you can, uh, you can jump some turnstiles that you have to pass through of like really getting to know someone. And then you find yourself like in a relationship that you're like, wait, I didn't ask certain question that should have been asked before we're suddenly living together. Yeah, that's you know? interesting. That's like a good cautionary tale for yeah. me. Because I think I just want to leap there so quickly of like, because I we're the same way in this way of like, when we know people, we're like, okay, you're good people. You're like yeah, in let's, for life. Let's go. Yeah. And then if I do that too quickly, that could be problematic. And Yeah, I'm a little more cautious in that regard as the older I'm getting. It's such a great visual in the scene where they're tossing the keys back and forth. Oh, yeah. And it's a big plot point that Sam won't go see Mississippi sing because he's afraid that she'll be bad, not because she's bad, but because that will mean she doesn't have self-awareness because she thinks <laughs> she's good. <laughs> so dicky. Uh, and he had a girlfriend who was an actress who that that was the case. She lacked self-awareness. Can you, was that something you experienced? Yeah, but that's more of a general thing where, you know, you meet someone and they say, I do this. Yeah. And you're like, I hope they're good. No, oh, it's so true. You know? Oh, it's so true. Having to go to someone's thing and then yeah, be like. Yeah. Yeah. But then when they are good, there's something thrilling about it. Totally. Because you're like, you know yourself. Yeah. Or like you, you, you're not delusional. Yeah. There's another line, I think at the beginning of the three night stand where I, I think of, when I rewatch this, I was like, so many of these lines are like ingrained in my mind. Not because I've watched it so much. I think just because they stuck with me. But she says, I've been feeling a little fragile these days. So I'm going to need you to be nice. And that. It's just something that I feel like I want to say to the world most of the time. Yeah, yeah. Like we all kind of need that. Yeah, I w- I'm glad you brought up that line. It's not in a line I would think about without you bringing it up. But it's like, I like those lines that just feel simple and honest. And the other thing is I like hinting at a kind of backstory mm-hmm. without oh, really yeah. telling the backstory. Like, And then you go, why has she been feeling fragile? 
why does she need him to be nice? Yeah, like I know. Like, like it, to me, me, I know. <laughs> yeah, you know, you know, but you can say a lot with saying a little. Yeah, but I also don't know if it's what you think, you know? I th- Yeah, I think it just was. I mean, I, I think she, I think her romantic past is as littered with corpses <laughs> as his. Right, you know, like, I think they're, yeah. they're too... Like she, he, don't they say like, let's clean each other up. Let's clean each other up. Like, aren't you, you don't want a project. Do you think that that was another thing I was going to ask you about? Do you think that that's possible to clean each other up? No. I mean, that's another thing is like, m- I've gotten more mature around relationships right. and. Two whole people coming together. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that I was probably still enslaved around the idea of like people saving each other. And like, all we need is like, because we've all gotten so many lousy messages from film and TV and songs about relationships which which have a kind of codependent addictive quality to them you know and it feels to me like i've i had to drop the idea that there was some sort of relationship or woman who was going to say complete me which is really i love cameron crowe but i think that's probably the most damaging line in the last like 50 years of movies <laughs> for, for relationships yeah. because it really it's that's like straight out of a kind of codependent textbook mm-hmm. like no one's completing you and and what if they go then you're half a person you're gone you're dead like that's that's so toxic so i think that there are certain ideas floated in this movie that are evolved and um worthwhile and certain ones that should be flicked away when you cross 30. Yeah. I think it's complicated because we we want to go you're never going to somebody told me this about relationships of just having my first heartbreak and not knowing what the next one will be like that feeling like oh well, I'm never going to be complete enough as myself to meet another complete person and then she was like, "Well, that's that's a myth too. Like you're never going to be perfect and you're never going to be complete and that's right. okay too to, right to find it's kind of like holding two truths at the same time mm-hmm. just it's paradox right yeah. yeah like you want you want to be in progress because we all are yeah and that's okay so what do you do when you're feeling fragile how do you take care of yourself i'm learning to call people and tell them i'm feeling that way i grew up in a family that was very um like sorrow or grief was like a problem that had mm. to be solved very quickly. Yeah. And it was kind of like, are you exercising? Are you eating right? Sleeping? How much are you sleeping? Like, it was never, there was not like a lot of, well, be sad until you're done being sad. So I've had to train myself in how to be better at grief. I was unstudied in it. And, and I also, um, sadness was so alarming to me that I, you know, I'm a Leo, so I'm a lion. I lick my wounds in private. Like I wanted to huddle, you know? Yeah. So telling people, that I feel that way. The the very act of telling people dissipates some of it. Yeah, totally. You know? Makes you feel less alone. Yeah. I can alter a mood with with music. Sometimes I I know that there's information to be gleaned from a melancholy mood. You know, like if you put on Beethoven and just go into the heart of Lean it. Lean in. Yeah. yeah. But when I'm feeling fragile, I mean, sometimes it's just almost giving myself a pep talk and going, you've been here before and you will be out of this. Because I, I have a, I had a tendency in my younger days to be very dramatic about moods. Like if I was in a great mood, I'd be like, "I've finally figured out life, and I will be happy forever." And then if I'm, if I was sad, it would be like, "Well, this is adulthood. This yeah. is depression. This like, will never lift." You were like New York. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. It was like so dramatic, and I've now found like, oh, 
okay, maybe this is a bad day or maybe this is just a bum hour, mm -hmm. you know? And again, that sample size gets larger and you're like, well, I've been happy and that's gone away and I've been sad and that's gone away. I think there's a bit of a, I mean, Americans are very bullying about happiness. And even, even that phrase, I've, I've, I've started to think that thing that every parent says, you know, um, I just want you to be happy. We just want you to be happy. I now hear that as they're saying, we just want you to be happy. Yeah. Like that's all we're interested in you yeah. being. And I find it to be, uh, um, I recoil from that phrase now because you just want me to have one human emotion. The keyboard is very big in terms of the options of emotions we can have. And you're saying you just want me to be this one thing. And happiness itself is like, I know it's in the title of the movie, but it's a very elusive thing. And it's also the byproduct of something. It's not a state that's just arrives, you know? There's a great quote by David Stendhal Rust that you might know that says, it is not joy that makes us grateful, it's gratitude that makes us joyful. Mm. And I feel, that's another thing when I'm feeling, like if I can remember to like do a gratitude list yeah. and like really be like, okay, this is these are things that are wonderful about your life. You know? Yeah, Deepak Chopra says that happiness is divine discontent because mm -hmm. it leaves room for the creative impulse. Oh, interesting, yeah. And I feel like we're that's like what we were talking about of constantly wanting for something. Yeah. And yeah, I like that that you that you reach out and that's something that like this this essay I was telling you about. Maybe I'll send it to you, but it's called the softness spectrum because I'm learning to control the dial on those emotions because feeling these like high highs and low lows is just too much for me. And yeah. I need to like learn to be, life is usually more in the middle, but I'm just someone who feels things up here and right, down here. Right. And I need to like get. I've also kind of had to dethrone myself from, in, in some ways, like thinking that I can deal with everything on my own is a kind of arrogance. Like thinking I'm so self-sufficient that I don't need to reach out to a friend and say like, can you just be on the phone with me for 10 minutes while I complain or, or just help me see this another way. Yeah. The, the work of Byron Katie is really amazing. That's helped me. I did two workshops with her and I'll sometimes when I can remember, like do a judge your neighbor worksheet and kind of flip the script yeah, in my yeah, head, yeah. which I find to be really valuable. We're social creatures and I think we need that connection with each other, you know? Yeah. And another thing too Mississippi says, you're making me sad and I want to leave in one of the scenes. And I feel like I've made that my mantra in a lot of ways sometimes where I just need to, at what least I'll say that? that to myself. It's when they're fighting and she like finds out that Rasheen is still there oh, and he yeah, cuts yeah. himself. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's a funny and wonderful scene. Uh, yeah. And I, I think just saying that out loud, she's very good, that character, at like saying what she needs, which yeah. I really, like, I'm feeling fragile. I'm going to need you to be nice. And she right. kind of like deadpan says that. And she says it again with this, where it's like, you're making me sad and I want to leave. My, I, I've noticed this thing. My female characters are much more forthcoming in that regard than my male characters. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the female characters are just like, they know who they are a little. I don't know. They're right. They're, they they just say those things. I really admire her. It's something that like I want to. I'm really. I'm trying to be better at saying no because yeah. it's really been burning me out and making me sad. Yeah. <laughs> so how have you navigated that saying no to things? It's just getting kind of easier. I mean, I, I never had a. I wasn't one of those people that couldn't say no, but I would sometimes not want to do something or say no, and then feel terribly guilty about it. And I've gotten kind of. I'm kind of over that. It doesn't knock me as much, yeah. that thing. But I used to struggle more with it. My therapist told me I have good boundaries with other people, but not with myself. So, like, oh, if yeah. I say I want to write from, like, 12 to 3, but someone asks me to get coffee, I'll be like, well, it's just me. So, but that's oh, yeah, something that's I need to be better about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, honoring your own. 
But if I had a date with you, I would like be at the coffee. Right. But if it's just with me, then I like can't stick right, to it. Right, 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 right. So I'm trying to be better about that. Yeah, I, I kind of, I don't know if this is good, <laughs> but I I protect my creative time. Yeah, that's like, right. I, that's I, really good, I think. That's why I th- I'm able, I mean, I know how much I procrastinate and how much I could get done, but I get done an enormous amount given that I'm just motivating myself. But I, I, I kind of look at a day where I don't have any, if I don't have to be anywhere, I kind of look at it as an office day. Yeah. Like I go somewhere and I write. That's great. Yeah. Okay, if you had to describe this movie in one line, what was the tagline for it? What, how would, how, what was your elevator pitch when you first pitched the, it to the, These are impossible questions for me because I feel like my movies are, like the marketing people always come up with better things than I come up with. Because I always feel, if I describe the movie to people, it sounds so boring. And like, I don't know, it's about people like in their 20s working it out and trying to get... I always say like it's about good people trying to get better at being themselves. Yeah, I love that. But I, I don't know. I don't know any better way to describe it. Like even the plot sounds kind of thin if you describe it. But I think the experience of watching it is quite affecting. Yeah, I don't I really know. like movies with plot. I like dialogue and. and that's why I've always loved Richard Linklater because right. it's like I want to watch Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy walk around European cities and talk. Like that's what I like watching. <laughs> it's kind of like an early podcast. Yeah, know? yeah, yeah. In a way, it's like good conversation. This would be very cinematic if we were having this conversation this walking my around. Dinner, my dinner Vienna, with Katie. Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah, exactly. The title and the best line of the movie, we talked about a little bit, but it's the story that Annie tells. And I love it so much. I mentioned it in my book. It's become kind of this guiding principle for my life and how I first connected with you. And she tells the story of being in the back of a cab where the cab driver says, with gratitude, the universe is eternally abundant. And when something good happens, you should say thank you and then also more please. So I have some questions about this. Sure. Did the cab thing really happen? You heard that story? Okay. No. Where did you hear the... Someone I knew was studying with some teacher in the valley. And he said that and I was like, that's groovy and cool. And I started playing with it. Like just, oh, Almost like marking, like, hey, universe, this is good. I'll take more of this. Yeah. Thanks. Like an order. I'll take more of this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I love this idea that the universe is communicatable or like you can communicate with it directly. I had a meditation teacher said, you can tell who has a strong relationship with the divine in theological scripture. And he said, King David had a fantastic relationship with God Mm -hmm. because he would say, kill my enemies bless my family. Like he would say like, this is what I'm ordering. This is what I want. He didn't say, if you have time, could you do this? Like he was like, this is what I'm, this is what I'm going to need from you, God. And it's a very strong understanding of like the, the both way. And he said, and I'll do this. Like, and and he praised him and and wrote these beautiful songs about God, but he was also clear. This is what I'm going to need. Yeah. Any good relationship communicating what you need. Clearly. Yeah. Clearly. That's why I admired Mississippi. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And what I'm bad at in relationships. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard. But I just like this idea that you could get more of something by saying like, yeah, this is where I'm feeling it. This is, I feel good here. So more of this. And it's a, you know, Ben and I kind of adapted that in a song called Doorstep, a Radner and Lee song, you know, more of this, bless my life with more of this. And I, you know, there's like that Kurt Vonnegut line, like sometimes you just have to say like, if this isn't nice, I don't know what is. Like, mm-hmm. like you, like I think it's really important because joy or moments where your heart is just so full, they can be few and far in between. 
And I think we do a disservice to ourselves and even the very notion of joy by not pinching ourselves and saying like, I'm really happy right now. Like this is lovely with the full knowledge that darker days are ahead. It won't always be this way, but to kind of like say, Hey, I'm into this. Thanks. I'll take a little more. Yeah. And it makes the moment last longer too, which I think is, you know, that's social media at its best, I think is making the moment last longer. And we both related to this. I have this thing where something good happens and I want to call my mom after and I never get what I want from that. Mm -hmm. But the reason I do it is to make the moment last longer. Right. And I think social media is the same thing. And I think we don't need to use another person or an app, but just to do it for ourselves and to the universe of saying that exact sentiment of yes, more. And just like grounding in that before you move on to the next. I also heard this really amazing thing. Someone said, the universe doesn't understand sarcasm. Mm. Like if you say the opposite of what you mean, the universe will be like, what? Like, I'm just giving you what you asked for. Right. So that's why I became a little bit around this time, maybe a little bit before I was becoming, I was quite an ironic nineties, you know, person. Mm -hmm. And I, something, the more work I did, certainly like the more ayahuasca I drank, like I just got more sincere and I became more attracted to sincere art and more sincere people. And I wanted to make sincere things. I wanted to actually say what I meant. And even though I can still speak irony, like I'm fluent in it, it's not that interesting to me ultimately. Like I'm much more interested in people saying what they, what they want, what they need, what, where they're struggling. Cause then it, it invites me to be sincere back with them. And those are the kind of conversations I want to be having anyway. Yeah. I love being earnest. I used to be embarrassed about it, but now I just lean. There's an art to it because I think also if you're not deft about it and you can't read a room, yeah. some rooms you don't want to be earnest in. <laughs> totally. They're not, they're, the invitation's not, not there. You right. have to figure out when you're safe sure. and who can, who can meet you in that, that dialogue. So do you believe that the universe is eternally abundant? I do. I think that sometimes I, I I almost want to shake Twitter and be like, we get what we give and we're giving a lot of negative. Like, you know, there's that thing about like the president, uh, the presidential candidate with the most ink spilled on them, like the most written about and discussed, even outraged by, often wins. It's like the person that captivates our imagination the most mm-hmm. will win. And I feel... Attention is a, I heard it described as we're a gardener with a hose and what we water grows. And like, do we want to water flowers or weeds? And it feels like I have to be very careful because I'm like everyone else. I'm like attracted to the dark and dysfunctional because that's how our brain works. It's like it actually, our brains are four times more likely to cling to a negative thought than a positive thought. It's like Velcro. Like it's, it's this kind of demonic thing where it's like we have to do four times as much work to prove to ourselves what, which is evidently and abundantly true, as true as the dark and dysfunctional, that there's beautiful things all around and people are still connecting and falling in love and and helping each other and healing and all these things. But I don't know if the world is worse off. It certainly seems like the world is worse off than it was 50 and 100 years ago. And yet, it just might be that we disseminate negativity with such rapidity and gusto that it seems that way. Yeah. So I, I find, I, I, I think our, our psyches are much more fragile than we realize. Mm -hmm. And we have to guard against some of this stuff and curate. Yeah, that's really hitting me in like an uncomfortable way. That's good because I feel like when something, when there's one negative thing that happens that's not even that big, 
my tendency is that very loud voice in my mind that's like telling me like I'm the worst and I'm bad and I'm ugly and nobody right. likes me. I'm not good enough. Is like, see, see, there's proof, there's right. proof, there's proof. And so it just gets louder and louder and louder. So we constantly have to like, I'm trying to figure out how to make that other like really whisper, like meek one. Yeah. I had a friend say to me a while back, like, why do I think that the dark voices of like shame and self-loathing are more true than the other voices yeah. in my head? Evidence, I guess. Well, yeah. Richard uh, Rohr says this beautiful thing that people think that the the voice of shame and guilt in your head is the voice of God. And the voice of healing and forgiveness is your imagination. And he said, it's exactly the opposite. Exactly the opposite. So anytime you hear that shaming, you know, negative voice, that's conditioning, cultural conditioning, your imagination, your kind of, our kind of twisted, dark attraction. And anytime there's that voice that's like, shh, shh, shh calm down. You know, it's a whispered voice. It's correct. I think you said that because it whispers. And, and it says like, you're okay, you're loved, you're protected, you're, you're safe, you're blessed, you're healed, you're forgiven. That is the voice of God. Oh, thanks. I needed to hear that today. Okay, so how do you practice gratitude? I sometimes have to get mechanical about it. I have to make a list. Do you do that often? I do it when I'm reminded to do it. What are you most grateful for? Here we go, in this moment. I'm really grateful for my physical health. I, the, the older I'm getting, the, the fragility of life, you know, I've, I've lost friends to suicide. I have a very dear friend who's going through chemo right now, really tough, but she's amazing. So I'm, I'm grateful for the, f the factness of my life. Just the fact that I am healthy and I can make things and I can show up and have conversations and be of service and, be sad when I, you know, like just the actual life stuff that's able to run through me as I'm limber and, uh, you know, on two feet. That feels really powerful just to remind myself of that. And I would say like, I'm so, so, so grateful that I get to live a creative life. Like really, like sometimes I wake up and I realize my only task on the earth right now is to write this thing. Or even when I'm filming a TV show and I'm like, yeah, I've got two big scenes today and that's that's just what I'm doing. There's a simplicity about that. There's like a, it's pared down and it's bite-sized and it's like, this is just what I'm doing. I, I think a lot about Annie Lamott's, you know, bird by bird. Yeah. Just take it bird by bird. Like what is the next action that you have to take? And when I can make my life manageable in that way, I'm doing okay. I get in trouble when I start thinking big you know, like if I can think small and, and I actually produce a lot and I'm able to, to get to so finish much. things, yeah. finishing things is like a real key, you know, even though we start a lot of things that we don't finish, the things that are asking to be finished to, to actually finish them is so beautiful. I get a little depressed sometimes when I finish things, but it's really bringing the ship into the Harbor creatively is, is an amazing thing to train yourself to do. I'm also grateful for the people in my life. I'm really grateful. I have like an amazing community of people. And then hit TV shows, awards, money, fame, whatever people think of you, that starts to fall away when you, and I can still get hooked by it, but when you go, I've got amazing people in my life, I've got my health, and I'm an artist. Like those three things are like, seriously, what more do I want? What more am I asking for? Then it just sounds like gluttony. Yeah, you know I was I mean? going to ask you, what is your want more of? My more please would be like more art and more creativity and more community and more love, like for, in, in both 
eros and agape. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like yeah. more universal love, more romantic love, more friend love, more. Yeah, I've told this story before, but my 40th birthday, my friend Krista Vernoff, who she's a, she runs Grey's Anatomy. She's the head writer on that show. And she's a beautiful being. And I was sitting around and do you know Sleeping at Last? Do you know Ryan O'Neill? He records his Sleeping at Last. He's like, he's a musician. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah like, he's incredible. Yeah. He, he, it was the night I met him, but he came to my birthday party and I had like 50 people over for my 40th birthday party at my house and we were jam packed into my living room. My sister, Melanie was there, oh. my older sister and all the, everyone I loved the most in the world was there. So cool. And everyone was playing music. Ben was there. And oh. My friends, Maddie and Nevada, like everyone was there. There was just such a warm vibe in the room and everyone was so happy. And Krista just taps me on the shoulder and she's like, look at this, this is success. This is success. Like to have a house that you can welcome people into, I fed everyone and everyone's playing music and happy. And I'm like, yeah, that's success. Like what else am I, what else am I trying to get here? Everything else feels like fool's gold, you know? It's really funny that you brought that up right now today. Cause I'm a, like, after we're done with this, we're gonna go. You're gonna be around all your friends and who I'm love you and are celebrating you. Moments, and it's really weird. Cause I'm also, about to leave and I also it's kind of checks a lot of those boxes for me because I made this thing I started working on this in February of 2018 and I finally completed it yeah and that though having this party I didn't want to do it and I'm really happy I'm like, it's hard to gather people to celebrate you I, I resist it all the time yeah. but then it's nice sometimes just to take stock of how much love you have in yeah, your life only good people and yeah yeah I think it's um it's important to do that you know? I think you're doing great Thank you. I, I think do. you're doing great. No, I really, I, I find your whole, like, I I didn't know who my audience was until I made the things. And I feel like you make art and it's kind of like a lighthouse or a sonar signal. Like it goes out and it captures who it's, it catches who it's going to catch. And I was like, oh, I was making the movie for you. I mean, if I just made the movie for you, I'd be happy because I'm like, wow, look at something I made, how it landed on you. And I know, I know there's a lot of other people who love it and I want to keep making stuff and hopefully my audience expands. And if it doesn't, I'm happy to make things for you. Great. Um, I'll be here. <laughs> so let's talk quickly about this podcast and sure. what we want it to be. And you're going to be a part of it and like a creative advisor of it. Oh, yeah, okay. Just, is that okay? Yeah, sure. <laughs> I'm it's just my assuming. first time hearing about it, okay, but let's great. do it. I'm just, I'm just assuming you're letting us use the name of this yeah. movie that you made that was yeah. so meaningful to me. So what do you, when I'm talking to people about what they want more of, what they're grateful for, and what they're happy about, those types of moments? What should I keep in mind having these conversations? What are your like? Well, I think what you just said, what you're grateful for and what you're happy about, mm -hmm. the the premise of the movie is those are the things you want more of. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Exactly. Like, like, I mean, certainly we have things that maybe there's not evidence of that we would like more of, but ultimately what it's saying is these are the things that feel that light me mm -hmm. up and I, in divine conscious energy, I'd like more of these. Like an order. Yeah. This feeling, please. I always say that when I talk about the film, like it's not saying happy, thank you, more please of the exact thing or the exact moment. It's right. this feeling. Yeah, yeah. I would, when you ask those questions, yeah. I would say happy, grateful, and what do you want more of? In that, I think it's best to start with what are you grateful for right now? Okay. Like, like start now. Yeah, yeah. And then say, where are you and what do you want? Yeah, the more please, like, what do you want more of that's already in your life? Yes. And then perhaps as an addendum, maybe, like, what what could you encourage more of? What would you like to see more yeah. of? Yeah. 
I also want it to be a place where people can recommend things because your newsletter, what my let it out letter is very similar situation. What I do in the podcast, I do the segment at the end now, which was new since you did it called likes and learns where I share something I've learned, something I've liked. Yeah. That is my favorite thing. I think we're both people who like, when we find something, we want to shout it to yeah. the rooftops. Yeah. And I think this really will lend itself to that. So what would, I don't know, do you have any creative advising around that concept of what I should prepare guests to bring to this? I mean, you could say three to five books, quotes, articles, pieces of music yeah. that have lit you up. That's what, that was my plan. You. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's good. And you feel like, yeah. Okay, great. Yeah. So maybe for the season finale, we can do that with you. Sure. Great. Sure. Thank you so much, Josh. Oh my God, movie Katie. And yeah. being my friend and spending so much time with me yeah, and being my last course. guest in my apartment. Of course. It's so heartening again to know that something I made and threw so much of myself in too has landed on you the way it has so thank you and I just I think it's great what you do and and I know you've affected so many people so keep it up thanks yeah it means so much thank you for listening all the way to the end watch happy thank you more please if that didn't make you want to watch that film I don't know it will and follow Josh and everything he does he's one of the most creative people that I know his show called Hunters on Amazon that he was shooting when we recorded this is now out and he is making so much music. He has a project with Ben Lee called Radner and Lee and they just released some new music and a lovely video. He's making solo music and putting a lot of that up on YouTube. So follow him there. And of course his newsletter. I know he mentioned that in this episode and if you're not on that already, I think you guys would really love it. I really love it. His essays come into my inbox, I swear, at the time that I need them most. And whatever he says in there just kind of goes right in. No filter. And the links that he shares, that he curates, are always turning me on to something interesting or cool or making me laugh. And if you like the Let It Out letter, you're going to love the Muse letter. He'll probably be popping in here occasionally to co-host and be a guest again. And I know he'll come back in the recommending format. And if you're listening to this the day it comes out, the 29th of May, Friday of this week, we're going to do a Instagram Live, Josh and I. So you can ask questions and follow up to the show. You can ask about the movie. And it'll just be a really nice time for us all to hang out in real time and do a bit of an update because we recorded this so many months ago. So I'm eager to see what Josh thinks of this conversation and for us to remember because it was a while ago now. So feel free to come with questions and I can't wait to see you then. If you liked this episode, share it with a friend, let us know what you think. And I'm really excited for your feedback about the new format. I, like I said, let it out isn't going anywhere. It will be back, but I'm excited to try something new, to switch it up. I think it's healthy to do that, you know? There's not a sponsor this week to the show, but I do want to mention the Let It Out kits. I have been making these self-study kits for the last several months, and the latest one that just came out is completely free and it's all about journaling. It's the topic of the book that I wrote in 2016 and this is really an update to that. So if you're someone who has never 
written in that format before that free writing for emotional wellness, writing for you, this is your journaling 101, but also for anyone who's like a seasoned journaler, someone who does the artist way morning pages every day like me, this I think will also benefit you and I think you'll really love it. It's four days. The first day is everything I've learned about journaling and taught in the workshops that I've taught about expressive writing everywhere from a park in Berlin to Kripalu to a retreat with Wanderlust, but I put it into this format that can be done at home. So the first day is the prompts that I use on the regular with myself in groups and everything I've learned about writing for emotional wellness. And then the next three days are themed. So we go over a lot of the concepts that were covered in this episode, actually. There are themes about heartbreak and being heartsick. There are themes about grief, creativity, connection, intimacy, and evolution and growth. That's there for you. It's free. Let me know what you think. There's other kits that you can check out. The link will be in the show notes. And the music you're hearing behind me now is by Jamey. As we spoke about in this episode, Jamie made the music for the film and it was only fitting that she would also do the music for this series as well, which is so cool and such a huge honor. And I'm so grateful to her. Listen to the entire soundtrack. Like I was saying to Josh, I truly love it. And I couldn't think of a more perfect person to do the music for this episode. So watch the film. Follow everything Josh does. Listen to Jamie. I love you guys. I'll talk to you really soon. And the emoji for this week's episode, if you're new here, we do this secret emoji where you comment it on my Instagram, on Josh's Instagram. You can tweet it at us. You can slide it to me at a coffee shop on a receipt that someone did once, which was like the most pleasant thing that's ever happened to me out in public in my life. (laughs) Anything to let us know that you're still listening all the way to the end. The emoji this week is, of course, the prayer hands, the universal sign of thank you. And I will leave you with this. Thank you. More, please.